Oh, that is new intro music. Oh, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, there it is. That is the new intro music for season four. That is a new mistake by Eric and the Sperm Tubes, our own in-house band. It's nice. Yes. It really sets the mood, especially for today, because we have a real life poet, author, and amazing human being with the sweetest fucking mustache I've ever seen. It's like having the real life Doc Holiday <laughs> in our fucking studio today. And the vibe, the vibe just fucks today. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm holding this up as if I have my camera, which we don't have set I up yet. <laughs> we are joined today by Clinton Bodell Dooley, author of You, This Is Me, Over. Thanks, guys, for having me. Uh, are you kidding me? It's a pleasure to have you, man. Um, and I have this a disclaimer up front. <laughs> Warning, full frontal stash may cause early pregnancy in teens. Mm. <laughs> Cover my bases. <laughs> I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I, so, yeah. Right in the bigote. Yeah. But, yeah, he showed me the book earlier this week. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, this dude's hot. It's everything a man should be. That mustache, my long hair. Hear this podcast. And she's like, you, it really does. It follows you wherever you go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> have you been approached to I do, can't, I can't help it. A new tombstone movie. <laughs> no, but I have to, I can't say enough about it. That was full frontal stash. I felt pregnant after watching tombstone and I, I may be pregnant again. <laughs> Oh man! Talk about talk about a good movie from start to finish. Oh, dude! And just the casting in yeah. it was amazing. I I, uh, I think of only two movies for Val Kilmer: um, Top Gun and Tombstone. I also give him a shout out in uh, The Saint. Oh yeah, yeah, great movie too. Showed a lot of versatility with his voices and accents. Yeah, you know. God damn it, Val Kilmer! Is that Island of Doctor Monroe. That one. That's not so much. That's yeah. so much. Oh, but what was that? One my favorite. <laughs> Because it's animals fucking. It's a, Ghost in the Darkness. Where oh, yes. That yes. is an awesome Winchester. movie. Doesn't get <laughs> or no. enough credit. You got knocked down. <laughs> you got to decide if you're going to get back up. <laughs> you're right, Michael Douglas. I will. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Dude, um, amazing fucking book. I got to tell you. Um, well, and just all the claimers, I'll buy the case of beer after this. This is my first podcast. Whoa. Yeah, so and you I've chose on, us. I've been on the radio twice in my life. One was a high school guy, and uh, it was after I got off the U.S. rugby team. We toured Australia, nice. and they were trying to promote Badass. the league back there. And then yeah. the other one was that business I was telling you guys about that I had in Tulsa. Hell yeah. So I've been on the radio twice. I, I have a face for it. But before we start, um, tell us about yourself, good sir. Give us the inside scoop as to who's Clinton. Tell us the beginnings, the humble beginnings of the the great author that you are now. Okay. Uh, I was a child of the 80s when mustache was king, first off. Uh, born in 82. I uh, was born in a small town in uh, Oklahoma, just south of the city of Tulsa, where I would spend most of my uh, youth and graduate high school from. But uh, it was great. It was it was a small town. I We had our grandparents' farm, uh, about 300-something acres out there. So I was the kid that, as soon as I got out there, I was, I was gone. And they just knew I'd be back. By sundown, or I get the belt. <laughs> Don't make us go looking for you, boy. He's out in the wild. Yeah. But it was just one of those things. I had this this real curious nature to me, and it, I would ask questions that didn't make sense at the time, but now, after getting into writing, um, they've always been there. Uh, I, you know, I, I was a guy who couldn't, or a kid that couldn't walk 
past a rock without turning it over and seeing what was underneath it. Why? Because it could be anything in a, <laughs> underneath it. You don't know until you look. And uh, then we moved up to uh, Tulsa, went to high school there. Uh, parents got divorced. That was pretty str- uh, pretty hard time in my life because my dad was so, he was my idol. Yeah, he, I mean, more than my idol. He, he was everything. And um, he had lost his dad, my grandfather, George, suddenly from a heart attack. And then we moved up to Tulsa uh, as he took a job, uh, a better job up there. He was running an IMSA uh, station there. But then he became a, an investigator for the medical examiner's office. And so like early age, when other people were like, take your daughter and son to work, People were going to law firms. People were going to firehouses. I was in the morgue. Mm-hmm. I was cool. helping dad weigh livers and stuff. And I remember being in the cooler uh, with about five or six uh, bodies that are all covered up. All you see is the toes sticking out. Holy shit. But I remember just seeing, looking at them. I was like, I wonder who they were. I wonder, wonder, I wonder what their story was. And I, maybe this has happened to you guys, too. I don't want to jump too far ahead. but Yeah, me and my dad, we used to harvest livers all the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, we were very poor, and we needed it for food. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. You got it. I didn't have a dad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's something that's common to, to most guys that I find myself, whether it be in the rugby clubs, because I played 17 years of rugby. And Holy shit. It was because I, I sucked at school. I mean, with dad gone, there was no repercussions for doing good or bad, so I just said, fuck it. I'm just going to go adventure when I should be in class, I'll just skip class and go. Actually it started at a really young age in first grade because our house there in Altmoggy was just one block off of the the street. So think about first grade. I asked like, Hey, can I go to the bathroom? You're like, yeah. And I I just went home. Dad was was asleep in the lounger, you know, with a Coors can in his hand and a cigarette almost burnt down to the nub. And I was in my room playing and I hear this knock on the door. And next thing you know, all the teachers. They're like, Mr. Dooley, is your son here? And he's like, no, He's supposed to be with you. And I popped my head out. I was like, dad, I'm here. And he goes, he'll be up to school in 10 minutes. <laughs> the door. So it was, it was almost destined. It, it was right from the gate that I just had this curious, I, I didn't, it's almost like when someone's trying to imprint on you, yep. whether that's an ideology, whether that's books, history is almost like, no, this isn't important. This, this is not really what life's about, or this doesn't interest me. And then when something is quintessential as nine 11 happens, when you, literally graduated yep. a couple months before that. It was the first time that I, I felt like this is, this is what I, this is something that I'm going to take on as my own. I'm, I don't like walking around or driving around the streets and seeing people scared. And it was just almost like, um, at early age, I, I found myself running with the wrong crowds and it was because the family dynamic was broken. I, I tend to gravitate towards people that would just accept me. And then if they had a bad day, I was having a bad day. I was an emotional collector. It's like their, their emotions would stick to me. So like there's one time, this is probably another reason why I ended up in an alternative center, but I was sitting there talking to a friend in the, the, the classroom door and the hallways just to my left, his right. And he's like, there's the guy right now. And he just told me a story that this guy tried to punk him in the bathroom. So I grabbed him by the collar, pulled him in class and just started beating the shit out of him. Yeah. Well, someone jumps on my back and I'm thinking, oh, it's one of his friends. So I stood up and I kind of headbutted. the <laughs> yeah. And that's when I heard my football coach's voice. And he was like, you're in so much trouble, dude. <laughs> 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 so basically it's a miracle that I made it this far. And um, I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. I met a good woman. My wife is everything. Uh, we've been married 17 years. We spent the first nice. seven and a half years geographically separated. Okay. Um, I did leave the army for a short time because we lost her mother in a car accident and um, I went home and that's when I started to realize that this, this identity crisis that I was in because in Afghanistan or in Iraq, 
life makes sense to me. I have a purpose here. I understand this environment. It's about yeah. respect and it's about earning that respect over and over again. And that's kind of the life that I lived growing up um, with the wrong crowd on the streets. But um, the, the, I guess the takeaway from that is that everything happens for a reason. And one day you run around the world, you do a couple laps and you realize the only thing you, you always feel like you have to go again, you have to go again. And it's this, this feeling of, what are you running from? You're running from yourself. And, and the problem is that you're the one thing that you take with you every time you yeah. go. So I, I talk about that in the book a little bit where it's like, you know, I, I fell in this habit of moving every three years because I was carrying around all this, this pain and this, this frustration inside. And, um, but it took about three years before my closest friends would start to see that Clint's not right. Clint yeah. has these issues and, but I'd leave and I get to go meet a whole new group of people, put my best foot forward. And I could usually yeah. hold it down for about a year and a half. And yeah. then all the behavior comes again. back. Yeah. yeah. So it all came to a head after this last appointment in 2020. Um, I, I came back and long story short is I found, um, I, f I found myself on the clubhouse of my motorcycle clubs uh, with the special forces brotherhood MC. And I woke up on the couch and I was dead ass drunk. And I woke up and my entire chain of command is around me. I'm talking team sergeant, team leader, sergeant major company commander, and two officers for my club. And that's when my day of reckoning came because it didn't make any sense. I didn't remember how I got there. And as I started to sit up on the couch, I patted the inside of my, my cut to make sure I had my concealed carry on me and it wasn't there. And then in that moment, I just had this acknowledgement. Oh fuck. It finally happened to me. I killed somebody. There's no going back from it. The cops are outside. They've already disarmed you. They're just trying to negotiate a peaceful surrender. Yeah. And then when I sat up and I said, who did I kill? And they told me you haven't killed anybody yet. Clint. That's when they informed me that my wife had found me with a gun against my head um, the night before. And she obviously for good reasons freaked out and then called, uh, not the cops, but she called a, a teammate of mine and the guy in the club and he initiated the let's go find Clint. And luckily they found me at the clubhouse, which is like 15 minutes down the road from where I live. But they sat out there all night and they said, well, we'll breathe a little easier if we know that he's not armed. Yeah. Because of what we just heard from his wife. And so they came in, disarmed me while I was getting drunk. And it was in that morning that I waking up that, um, the, the personality, the, the, the mask that I was wearing, I mean, you got to keep in mind, like oh, yeah. you guys know how this is because these guys see me at work that, you know, the day before and I'm crushing it. Yeah. And we're sometimes victims of our own success. Yes. Yeah. We don't tend to look for problems with people that are performing at a high level. It's only if they nosedive that's when we're like, Oh fuck, what happened there? And yeah. why didn't we see this coming? Yeah. And I, I want to pause you there. And, and that's, that's the crux of operator syndrome. That's a real thing that has been developed, studied. And it's, we have this high amount of stress. That we're always on alias to high aliostatic load. Um, and we get used to that load and we carry that burden with us. And we are the guys that can operate in that. But the moment that one gear falls off, it all starts fucking falling down. Yeah. And that's, and, and they've studied this and the doctors who came out with this and published it, it's like, look guys, like it states in their study, the moment one little thing starts, if one thing comes off, it's all going to start crumbling down mm -hmm. and we have to be able to, uh, and I think that's exactly where you were at. It just, that was the one thing that like your body, your mind, everything was just, now it's like, 
I'm going and taking a nosedive. Yeah. And it's, I've mentioned in the book, the, I'll try not to say that a thousand times. No, dude, I poured it into the book. This is, and that's why it's so important for us to talk about this because this right here, you and this book, this is what we need in our community. We need more Clintons. We need more people to share their authentic truth because that's what needs to be highlighted. And I get it. Nobody wants to talk about emotions and feelings, but that's how we heal. Yeah. And nobody wants to watch that movie where it's, me and Eric sitting down and being like, Hey, you know what, man, I love you. Let's talk about how we recovered from this. And it's just a journey of two friends helping each other. And at the end we're like, man, I am so much better than now that I went to go get help and went through therapy and I take my medications and I meditate and we high five and the screen ends. Like people are going to be like, Oh, where's, where's the war story? (laughs) This, this right here, this is the real war. This is, this is the, (laughs) and I'm glad that we're, we're lucky enough to made it this level because we know plenty of people who didn't. Yeah. And so this book is a way to talk about war without telling war stories. And like we were talking about earlier, I, you know, I I do believe that when you tell a war story, it's almost like a challenge coin being placed on the table and then someone pulls out their war story and they pull out their war story. And really what you're doing is you're glorifying the parts that you really, for lack of a better word, got off on with the adrenaline dump, but you don't talk about the stuff that keeps you up at night. You don't talk about, you know, waking up uh, behind the couch, you fall asleep in your bed and you just drank a fifth, a fifth of something and some ZQL and pills just to knock yourself out. And then you start waking up in weird places around your house. And for me, it was, uh, I was always behind a bed or I was in a tub and my wife would still be asleep and I would just wake up and like, Oh shit. And go back up to bed. Yeah. Oh, she didn't realize that. But the women that love us through this, through ourselves, they're the ones that see all the the cracks in the, in the, in the surface. Um, and no one else does mm-hmm. because we can, we, we just, we're professionals and we're, we're, we're brothers and we, we talk and we keep each other's morale up. We embrace the suck yeah. together, but we, we, we hurt really bad when we're trying to embrace emotions. Yeah. And so this book is, you know, how do you talk about war without telling war stories? And it's also, if you look at it and there's one in the back of the book called map check where I, I talk about like, emotions are not terrain features on a map. There is no emotional, spiritual, and mental map that you can sit down with a professional or your wife, or maybe a kid that you should have been there for more and say, listen, this is where I was at. And if you can understand this, then you can understand what was going on in my life that time. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it go away, but I want you to understand because I've come through it realizing now that with some perspective that I, I, I could have been a better father to you. I could have been a better husband neighbor, whatever, uh, brother. So that's, that's the gift of being able to put poems and prose and analogies down on paper is it, it, you get to kind of this topographical emotional map spread out through about 230 pages where I just hope that people would say, Hey, listen, I thought this, I was by myself. This is a voice in my head that I've never spoken out loud. And then here it is on paper. Like some guy just took the words out of my most hidden room in my, my, my soul and poured it out on paper. And if he feels that way, then you've done two things. One, he's not alone. He has to acknowledge that at the gig. I'm not alone because someone else out there who I've never talked to, never walked with, never gotten a firefight with, they feel it too. And the other one is it's okay. You can still be manly and you can still have feelings. It's, it's not, it's not a cheesy thing. No, it's not. It's, and like we were talking about, talking about earlier, um, every warrior class, every, every culture embraced the ability to discuss 
emotions and the ability to share and talk openly about what you were feeling. It was never, when did doing poetry turn into something that was not part of a warrior cast? If you yeah. look, if you look back and, and yeah. look at the way that people and the cultures that we idolize, poetry was a powerful thing. It was. And it surprised me because, uh, all disclaimers are in the book. You know, I, I have a high school education level right now. I graduated from alternative school for the longest time. I struggled in school and I couldn't spell for shit. So like I, I leaned on my physicality and my, my, my street smarts to kind of navigate, you know, the world around me. And it was weird because I got out for those three years to go be with my wife because she lost her mother. And it was in her seeing that I was missing what I gave up or I couldn't turn it off because the war was still going on and everybody we knew was still deploying. And, um, it just, she could tell like, no, Clint, Clint hasn't finished what he set out to do. And she said, I'll go with you this time. So I collapsed the business, called a recruiter, said, Hey, I'm an old 18 Bravo. I'd like to get back in. He's like, well, you can't. And I'm like, well, shit, (laughs) I should have probably asked that question before I just collapsed the business. I just see the montage of you throwing your boots back on, putting your kid parade back on, marching in. I'm coming back in, going back in. Uh, No, no. So then I was like, that was probably... When was the last time a recruiter actually knew what the fuck he was talking yeah. about? So I called a couple of guys and I finally got it to this guy. He's like, what, you're an 18 series guy? He goes, yeah. And it's like, okay, we can get you back. You're like one of the only people we can get back. Cause this is in 2016, second term of Obama. And they were really downsizing a lot yeah. at that point. And I think a lot of people were because they felt the ROEs getting tighter and tighter and um, not actually improving their quality of being able to affect the environment, but hindering it. Yeah. They got frustrated. They got burnt out. And I've often referred to it for anybody who hasn't gone through it, but for everybody listening to this, that, that has, you guys can probably relate to this analogy that you won't find in the book, but the war on terror was a freight train and this freight train didn't stop for nobody. You know, you would think, okay, we're going to get on this train and then eventually it'll stop and we can get off and new bodies can get on. And no, it was just, it never stopped. It just kept going and going faster and faster. And you could see that it was taking you off the cliff and guys were hurling themselves from the train, not with all the resources that we have nowadays, yeah. like I was in 2013 when I literally got off the trigger and I was back home in the place where I had a lot of childhood stuff going on. And I just felt like a confused old child again. But I wish to God that I had kind of tapered off, got seek some help, tapered off, and then um, I would have been in a much better you know, position to take on new challenges or maybe address old things that I never dealt with properly. And that's what my wife saw. That's why she was like, go back. Yeah, no, you're, you're hundred percent correct. Um, I have tons of brothers, uh, former teammates that they just jettison themselves off that train and they, they pray say, for a soft landing. And yeah, we all know guys that they did not have a soft landing no. guys that took their lives because when they got off and they had that identity of I'm a soldier, I'm a, a Marine, I'm a Green Beret, I'm a, a, and then you go back and you stand in line and you're just another asshole in line. Yeah. And you go to the VA and at that time they were completely underdeveloped for the yeah. workload that they were expected to keep yeah. up with. And then what do they do? You come in, my back hurts. Here's some uh, hydrocodones, chew on those. Yeah. And I was taking four of those a day for 18 months and I walked into the, the VA and there was this new doc that they brought in off of a retirement to try to keep up with the workload. They must've offered this guy a ridiculous amount of money to okay. come back, but he was a straight shooter and I'd never seen him before. And I was, Hey doc, you know, I've been 
being seen by the uh, the VA for 18 months. I've done all the stuff that we did when I was in, but it's, it's again, not, not cutting the mustard. And uh, I, I appreciate you guys managing my pain because it does help, but it, it also hurts me in other ways because, you know, I, I, I'm not quite myself when I'm doped up yeah. and he unclips his glasses and turns towards me. And I, cause I asked him, I was like, what is the plan to fix me? And this is when he turned towards me, unclips his glasses. And he's like, all right, son, I have no reason to lie to you. I'm just going to shoot it to you straight. And I hope you have thick skin. I was like, send it. He was like, there is no plan to fix you. We're going to manage your pain until your MRI or x-ray show a surgeon that you need to have a rod put in there. And then in my experience, we only give you harder narcotics thereafter. And I was like, wow, thank you. First yeah. off for being honest. Second of all, canceled my hydrocodones. I'd rather be in constant pain looking for the solution than being a drugged up dope head the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's what I did. I eventually uh, flew myself to Germany and had two artificial discs that you can't get here in the States called M6 um, put in and it, it worked, man. Holy shit. It worked. I'm L3, L4, L4, L5. But the reason why I went to Germany and got these in, and this is kind of the way the universe works too. So now I'm back on active duty. I have this hurt back. I can't take anything other than Motrin. I'm still rucking, jumping, fighting, shooting, all that stuff that we do. And I was using alcohol then as a way to numb myself and changing the relationship. Once I started drinking to numb the pain, then I also started eventually using alcohol to help me get to sleep because I couldn't sleep. And so with the alcohol changing relationship with that, I found myself in this constant, you know, pain. And so I was like, you know what, you need to look into the market and see what it has available. And once I found these M6 discs, they, they did something that I, none of the other designs here in the States do. They, they have a, an impact, like a gel center. It'll actually absorb and they articulate and they have these rubber bands that, you know, when you're, you're sitting straight like this and you turn to the right or left with your torso, it, you're using muscles to do that. And when you relax those muscles, it pulls you back to like a neutral. Yeah. Well, that's, that's built in there too. And so I, I called a, um, I called the hospital. They had their affiliates here in the States and uh, I got to talk to three people. One was a seal. The other one was a Marine and the other guy was uh, an army dude. And so out of the three, I really wanted to talk to the seal a little bit more because of similar job descriptions yeah. and stuff. And he was, and as soon as I talked to him, he's like, dude, do it, do it. He goes, I'm back. I goes, I'm jumping, I'm rucking, I'm shooting. He goes, do it. And so I asked him what the price would be. And they said $50,000. And I was like, okay. Holy fucking shit. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a little bit out of my price range or a lot out of my price range. So, but this is how the universe works. I, I can see it now because I, I basically looked up at the, my ceiling. I was sitting in my kitchen on my laptop and I was like, all right, I need $50,000. And I just left it at that. And I closed my laptop, never thought about the artificial disc again. Three months later, I was riding with my motorcycle club and we got hit from behind my wife and I, um, because a sharp turn was coming up. There was sand and another bike hit us in the back. Well, I stayed with the bike to allow my wife to get off clean. And so we're sliding. She's off clean. And um, I tried to let go of the bike the last second. And the brake lever jumped up <laughs> and went right through my bicep and got the artery. So I ripped it off. It's squirting. I put a thumb in it, make sure she's okay. And then I pull my thumb out and it's still squirting. And then luckily I had like three or four 18 deltas. And I was like, medic. They tackled me, they packed it up, they packaged me up and everything was good. By the time the IMSA guys got there, like, damn, our job's done. 
So they, um, they, they took me to Crestview emergency room. And the first thing my, my wife and I, and my mom was in town. This is the first time she had seen me on a motorcycle and I went down on it. Um, they're in the, the room and they're trying to unwrap this thing. And they're saying, Hey, it can't be an artery son, or they wouldn't have sent you here. Cause we don't do arteries. I'm like, it was an artery. Yeah. There's a very different blood. Yeah. Yes. It's that maker's mark red, yeah. that yeah. oxygenated blood. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I tried to tell them and I was like, Hey, let's get your bleeder kid in here. Um, and they didn't listen and they burst it. It was like a pint of Guinness dumping on my chest. Cause they had the arm elevated over me and I'm yeah. just going completely yeah. white. I'm about to pass out. And I look at, uh, there's two female nurses in there and there's one male nurse. And so I kind of looked at the guy and I was like, Hey, are you going to fucking watch me die? Or are you going to save my life? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm leaving you right now. <laughs> Fade to black. Well, they sent me down to Fort Walton, um, where they had a vascular surgeon standing by. And when I got to the ICU, um, they just immediately rolled me in the back, the docs over me. And he was like, Hey son, my name's so-and-so. And, um, what, what were your questions? I was like, best scenario, worst scenario. And he goes, well, worst scenario is I'll have to take your arm because it's been eight hours. Um, best scenario is I already know where the veins are in your thigh that I'm going to take to repair the artery. And I was like, and since it was my right arm, I was like, well, I hope I get to shake your hand after this. And he gassed me and I was out. Well, I wake up and everything's patched up and all that. And my vascular surgeon tells me, Clint, you're, you're kind of a freak. He goes, the way that the, the artery system works is from the shoulder down through the bicep. There's one main artery, the brachial, and then it branches off into two after the elbow. He goes, when we repaired your artery, we didn't get blood flow returning. So I dug around in your bicep. I found an auxiliary artery and I clamped that down and then it still didn't flow. So I dug around in your tricep and there's another auxiliary artery. And so no nerve damage, no nothing. And Damn. the payout from the insurance thing was how much do you think? $50,000 on the dollar. <laughs> and so what did I do? I didn't tell anybody in my chain of command. I put in an Oconus pass, uh, tell them I was going to go visit some old friends in Germany Flew over, um, got the surgery, and seven days later, I was supposed to stay there for 14 to recover, but I was like, if they're, all they're going to have me do is lay in a bed, I can do that next to my wife because I had to go start a, a school in January. And so that's 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 the kind of guys that, Must go we, on. yeah, we give everything to this, yeah. this, this work. And, and if you only knew the sacrifices we were willing to make, and then you apply that to mental health, you can start to see this is a very dangerous combo. These, these guys give everything that their identity, their heart and soul are wrapped up into trying to get that piece that we lost after nine 11 back, which you can't do. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of us now that we're coming off the, you know, off the trail and we're finding each other out there in time and space. We need to be able to talk about certain things and uh, approach it from a different angle. And um, I'm really hoping that the book did that for you guys. Oh yeah. It, like when we had a conversation over text, like I have, been playing uh, Green Beret detective for the last two and a half years, just trying to figure out why things break down the way they do. And it's not isolated. We're all going to go through it. And every time I, I see one of my close friends or see even people that I didn't care for, really, I have that compassion still me. And I, I know like, Hey, hurt people, hurt people. I know you're going to need this. I know you're going to need me at some point. I'm here. I can talk about this stuff because I'm not afraid to be open about this shit. And all of us are going to deal with it. I'm seeing everybody go through with yeah. it. At yeah. first, it's like... It, it's fucking scary, dude. Yeah. The hardest it's, part was... Um, they maybe You also seek help for mental health, right? Yep. Cool. Well, then maybe you got frustrated. It was At least I was aware of something. They gave you this... this it almost looked like a target. 
and it has all these core emotions on it, like happy, sad, glad. Oh mad. yeah, the w- emotions wheel. Then the yeah. emotions wheel, yeah. and then yeah. it expands out in other words, and the more words, yeah. more yes. words. So when you say I'm I'm good, you just basically that no, that when you want to go out into that box and find a a more specific type yeah. of good. Yeah, and I couldn't do it. I was like, what do you, what do you fucking mean, like? I carried that feelings wheel like for months. Feelings like, yeah. what? it was almost like when my wife asked me like, Hey, are you happy? And I was like, yeah, I'm fucking happy. <laughs> and she's like, no, I think you missed what you gave up to come back. And I want you to be happy. Yeah. And then after that, it was like two weeks later that I had this voice in my head. It was just like happy. I thought it was happy. Now she's in my head. Now I, I question everything. This yeah. is, and she was right though. And, um, yeah, the, the emotions wheel was very impactful and, and shout out to my friend, Aaron, uh, she showed me this really cool, like fully, cause you know, they just had the bare black and white printout one, but she's like, Hey, check out my feelings wheel. And her, one of her, her doctor had given her like this really Damn, elaborate word. big one <laughs> with all the colors. And I'm like, Oh shit. Mine doesn't even have that emotion. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for like three months I'd walk around oh, and like, God. I was really trying to understand why, why was I only feeling like, Okay, I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm, I'm angry. Fucking angry. Oh. Yeah. And uh, why was I always watching the same comedy shows? Like I, uh, the only way I could laugh or like feel anything is like I would watch The Office, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand why. I didn't understand why I would watch the same re- repeated like shows always. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't like anxiety. I don't. I don't like the anxiety of like, oh, what happened here's next in this action TV yeah. show. Like, if even you really want to, yeah. If you like really want to get into the weeds on that a little bit. You know, I, I still to this day can't watch movies like Saw, yes. the torture. Um, I can't, I, I, what is it, Purge? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I've never watched one of those. And it's because- You can't. <laughs> that, that to me is very a very scary thing. And I think my dad did a good job early on when we were still a United family of taking me all the air shows, getting me into military history museums. And I really gravitated towards the Civil War. There was something so- it didn't, again, like kind of like that voice, like, I wonder how that could have happened. You know, you're talking yeah. about guys that now we, we fight together and we bleed together. And, but then they were fighting each other. And some of those guys had served a lot of those uh, commanding to officers school together. School together. And it, there was just something so poetically tragic about it that yeah. I wanted to understand it. So I could maybe help others not let it happen again. Yeah. And so there's, there's so many things that divide us nowadays. And, um, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's by design. Um, I'm not a conspiracy dude. No, you're at the same time. Right. I believe in show, show me the information. Let me make up my own mind. Yeah. I'm not going to regurgitate something just because you told me this is, you know, you kind of get in that, that OODA loop process of what we were talking about earlier, which is like, Hey, you know, freaking, I heard this, I OODA looped it. It makes sense. And boom, going on. You never question it. Yeah. As long as it, you know, you understand what steps one, two, and three are ex- uh, that are expected of you in the order, you, you don't even question it after that. And I think that's where SF guys really grow and why we're a little bit more creative uh, in our craft is because we do question. Yeah. Sometimes we question too much yeah. <laughs> and we get told to <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> we're doing it anyway. <laughs> Sir, we can't go over this mountain. <laughs> that was fucking stupid. Sir, are you mountain. going up in the mountain with us? <laughs> well, no. And I'm like, well, then let us pick our own route. Such a dumb idea. And Kyle leading the way. Just went up it. Yeah. Shout, shout out to my boy, Mountain Soap Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> we all have a we all have motherfucker leading us up there. I'm like, he's going to sidestep it, right? Nope. He just fucking 
We're going. Like it was like We're literally going. like like this much of an yeah. echo. Oh, I see where we need to go right there, dude. Kyle's <laughs> just going. I'm like cardiovascular son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, and it, let's talk about that for a second. The um, I don't know about you guys, and I don't know how you guys found your individual ways into being GBs or Green Berets, and. But mine was, I was, I was playing rugby at Bragg. There was a couple guys on the rugby team with me. I was a parachute rigger in the 82nd and I had been desperately trying to get a 4187 to go over, become 11 Bravo because I wanted to get into the fight. You know, why the division kicked out twice while I was there, I was on funeral detail both times flying around mostly the Eastern uh, side of the States burying people. And I was like, this isn't, this is a very important thing that I'm doing, but there's almost like this you son of a bitch. Yeah. You lucky son of a bitch. No. You got to prove yourself and go home victorious. Oh. And not a lot of people get that. Some people will join and then they'll look for the safest job possible. And they're happy doing that. And I think a, a book that I hadn't read cover to cover, but I did read enough of it. And it always stuck with me was on killing mm. where the guy's talking about, you know, yeah, fight yeah. or flight. Well, no, wait, hold on. There's also posture and submit. Yeah. And you, if you look at it from that, those angles, that, that's really what you see nowadays. There's, there's some people that aren't willing to take life, but they are willing to give you the gun and load your musket, so to say, for you because you're the guy who will pull the trigger. And then there's other people that just keep loading their musket. And they, that's when the NCOs, after the battle's over, they realize this guy never fired a shot. He just has eight freaking balls rammed into his, his musket. And so I thought that was a very interesting take on it. And it was just, it, all it took was someone looking at it just a little bit more in depth and yeah. looking at it from a different angle. And I appreciated that he brought it that. And uh, I try to mirror that with uh, emotions yeah, and spiritual journeys and stuff. Yeah. For me, uh, my, my path to being a green beret was really, really weird. I, um, so the, the predator who was my stepfather, he was a green beret. And I think this man was like maniacal, sick, twisted individual, but it, it kind of left this idea in my head that, uh, well, he's a piece of shit. There's no way he could have done this because by the time I got old enough and had found myself in service, I'm like, these guys are like the epitome of the best of the best. Like I got to prove this. And it, it became this thing that I had to go do. And even if I didn't acknowledge it, I had to be better. I had to outrank him. I had to go get more. And it wasn't until I was in my second, uh, in treatment at the hospital that I really realized like, what am I chasing? What am I trying to prove? Like, like I know he never ever amounted to anything. And then I finally started doing the homework and digging and researching this dude. And lo and behold, yeah, I contacted somebody that served with him. I contacted a dude that knew him intimately. and was like, he was a piece of shit. Nobody Nobody liked him. He was fucking stupid. Not only was he stupid, but like, man, he was really, really stupid. I was like, <laughs> fuck. Because one thing that I realized was he never had pictures of teammates, he never had team coins. He never had any of the things that like I hold on dearly. Like, I, mm -hmm. like there was no memorabilia, no nothing. And he always made shit up and he always had like all these war stories. It just didn't seem right. Well, and there's, there's your first yeah. Indicator right there. And then when you get older and you realize like, there's no way he could have been part of that operation. He was already out of the military by then. But then having that concrete evidence from this guy that knew him and be like, yeah, he never deployed. Nobody ever wanted him on a team. I think he was kicked off like every team that they put him in. I was like, oh. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah, but you've seen stellar dudes in your career, same as me, like Silver Star recipients. Yeah. Get a DUI for being like barely over the limit. Yeah. And their entire career. Done. 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 But yet these, the shitbird over here gets chance after chance after chance. And there's just, it, there's no rhyme or reason to it sometimes. Yeah. Um, then again, I don't want to speak for anybody else because maybe that chain of command realized that, yeah, this guy's a he's, he's not an ideal uh, GB, but he's got five kids and a family and it, we're doing this more for their benefit yeah. than his. Yeah. We're going to remind him that, you know, where he's at on the pecking order, every chance we get and give yeah. him the shittiest of jobs and expect him to smile, but it's not for him. I, I did see that one particular story and I don't want to divulge it just because like it was, it did play out exactly like that. The dude, horrible garbage human being, but then you look at the kids and it's like, now I understand why it, those commanders made that decision. Well, hey, you, 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 you said something um, about telling war stories. I can honestly tell you, I had both grandfathers in World War II. One was in the Pacific, um, and my dad's father, George, he was uh, in the European campaign as a tank commander. Fuck yeah. Yeah, he got he landed there with the invasion of Normandy, pushed in about a mile. They blew up his tank. They gave him another one. He pushed another mile, and they blew up his tank. They gave him a third one, <laughs> and then he gets pulled from the front line because somewhere in his jacket, it said that he had taken a typing class in college No, and they pulled him back to do, because to, that was a critical, critical skill yeah. with everything's yeah. typewriters and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what saved him from probably dying. And oh, fuck. yeah. And then dad goes to Vietnam. Yeah. He went to Oklahoma military Academy. Uh, he was just bred for that shit. And, um, you know, it, being in a small town and let's talk about like mid eighties, I was, I was exposed to dad and his friends and, um, they'd come over, they'd see his truck parked out on the weekends when he wasn't working at the IMSA place. And, uh, they would, they would come over and they would, they, they, they look, some of these guys look like they lived underneath a bridge and probably fucking did. Yeah. Sadly enough. And, but they'd have a 30 pack on the ground, they would drink. <laughs> and then you start to see these very stoic, very quiet guys start to, you know, rough house a little bit, especially with me. Cause I loved the attention and you didn't know if they were going to be like, someone's going to freak out and have a, um, a flashback to, to Nam or they were like, Hey, this is how you hold a knife. This is how you collapse a trachea. This is, this is a kill. This is a kill. And you're like, as a kid, you think everybody grows up with that, but they don't. Yeah. And so I, I equivalated to this and I already told you guys this prior to the, the podcast starting, but if I gave you an entire dictionary of every English word known to man, and I asked you to describe a burn, could you really describe a burn or is it something about being burned? You know exactly what a burn is, but anything, any way of trying to put it onto words, put it into music, put it into art, it was, it's going to fall way short of what the actual experience was. Yeah. And that's combat. And that's, that's, that's what we have to overcome and find new unconventional ways to approach. I mean, the way I see it, I wasn't part of the crew. Neither were you guys that got us into Afghanistan, the, the horse soldiers and stuff that I have nothing but the utmost respect for. Um, but maybe we can lead everybody to recovery because we fall on the back nine of the war. Yeah. And that's, that's a challenge that I put out there to guys. And maybe you want to talk a little bit more about your, you said it then. And this is a great thing about writing is a, I write something down and then someone will read it and they'll hit me up like, dude, you yeah. took the words right out of my head. Yeah. And I'm like, good. That's why it's called you. This is me over. I'm, I'm broadcasting. I'm just make, letting people know like, this is me and I'm, I'm going to be the sacrificial land. I'm going to be the wind dummy on this first jump. Yeah. And it could go either way. It could be embraced or I could be shunned from the community, but either way, 
I think that it's needed now more than ever. And since I know the World War II guys, and that there's a difference right there. The World War II guys, because I often get asked this, like, well, what's the difference? Well, in World War II, the entire country went to war. So think about the camaraderie. Yeah. After the war was over, you didn't have to, like the person giving you your copy or standing in line with you, they probably served in some capacity too. There's this great you know, bond there. After Vietnam, we haven't had that. There was nothing for these guys. Yeah. Like my dad, then they threw shit on the bus. Yeah. Dad and the guys are trying to de the bus in California. Like, no, stay right there. And the no. first thing they're told to do is get into civvies and don't tell anybody you're in the military. And I saw what that did um, to a bunch, well, at least some, some Vietnam veterans. And now after going through it ourselves, I think it's up to us to say, okay, there is a way, f- there's, there's stuff that needs to be unpacked in a, in a certain order. And it's going to take somebody coming up with something and old tricks are the best tricks. And it goes back to like poetry. It's been a thing for a long time. And I didn't realize I was a poet. I'd never written anything in my entire life. But when I came back into the military in 2016, I signed into branch. I did what I always did. I fucking worked really hard. But then despite how much I gave myself to knock myself out at night, I'd wake up at like 1.30 and just be sitting there looking at my ceiling, just frustrated that I couldn't go back to sleep. And when I was out with Meredith, since we had spent seven and a half years geographically separated at that time, we had to do a lot of marriage counseling because we were both alpha personalities. And that's what I loved about her so much is that she didn't need me to take care of her. I, if I survive this, if I do do good and come back, I'll enhance her life. But if I die, then she's fully capable, strong mm-hmm. enough to keep on rucking by herself. And it was in that that... I had that thought in my head. I was like, you know what? They're always asking Meredith and these marriage counselors uh, things. That, Are you journaling? Are you journaling? Because she's kind of more stoic. She's a little bit more introverted. But me, they never did. Like, oh, Clint will tell you if I can, what's on his <laughs> mind. No big deal. Just ask him an honest question. He'll give you an honest answer. Um, but then I thought about it. I was like, journaling, writing stuff down. And I pulled out my phone, same one I have in front of me right here, or maybe in a little older one than this. And I just let my thumbs go. And it was right before Memorial Day. And I just wrote something. And as soon as I wrote it, it came out in one transmission and I just fell back asleep like a baby. And I slept like five. I was like, Jesus, that worked. Hmm. And I got up the next morning and I looked at what I had written and I didn't quite understand, understand it. I knew I related to it, but I sent it to my wife and she was like, this kind of looks like a poem, Clint. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, now that she had given it a name, um, I just, I sent it up to this poetry contest and it got published in a book. Uh, and so what are the, what are the odds that the first thing you write gets published? But that was just the kind of kick in the butt that I needed to just keep writing and yeah. playing with it. And, um, there's two things. If you guys pulled your book, it's towards the beginning. I think it's one of the first poems, but it's called, uh, Arlington. Yep. It's the, it used to be called lay me down, but I changed it to Arlington. Once I realized that that's exactly what I was trying to express the moment. So I changed the, the vocabulary. Or I the think title. I actually have this one marked out. Yep. Yep. Right there. Right there. It should have a picture of the cemetery. Yeah. Would you like me to read it? Yes, please. Okay. So this is the first thing I ever wrote and it's called Arlington. Lay me down amidst our story. Lay me down amidst our glory. We live, we breathe, we fight, we die. We love, we leave, we say goodbye. In this moment, we close a door and flip the selector on our hearts from love to war. Desert sands and Hindu walls turn boys to men who see it all. Innocence dies inside the soul and leaves behind a lump like coal. But from the ashes of that twas loss, you find the fields and count the costs. Dress right dressed in columns of stone, we found Arlington, we call it home. For we have lived and we have died, now you must go and you must bide. 
Forget us not is our cry. We came to fight and we were all prepared to die. Lay me down amidst our story. Lay me down amidst our glory. And that was the first thing. And that's, that's kind of, it's, Dude, that's, I don't know what to do with it. And and so I, I started sharing it with people that I, I trusted, but I, there's no way I was going to send it out over the team chat or anything like that. But that's, that's because we inherently were always told warriors don't, don't we don't, we don't have emotions. We don't have feelings. This is the type of shit that brothers long, long ago would sit around a fire and talk about and yeah. share. Like that's yeah. truth. That's or the, the cry. Yeah. Like the cry after yeah. battle would, was a thing. That was a thing. And that like, was, a, that was, you need to purge the, you do You need to get, you need to get that out of there. That's why it's yeah. so important. Like one of the things that, um, and, good, and shout man. out to, um, that's man, fucking amazing, amazing poem, man. Thank you for reading that. Um, that's why I marked it. And I was like, man, like that's, that's truly indicative of like what we all feel. Mm-hmm. We might not say it, but we all feel that. So I finally figured out what the poems were in relation to me. When I got to the hospital, um, two things happened. My team sergeant took me to the hospital. I was really nervous, you know, and he, he sat with me while I filled out the paperwork, gave me a big old hug and I went through the security doors. What I was not expecting when I went, walked through those security doors and I was now a, a patient admitted to the, um, the military resilience unit there at Panama city. Um, I felt this profound like release so much so that the lady that was taking my initial information vitals and all that stuff, she looked at me, she goes, wow, can I just say something? I was like, yeah, go ahead. And she's like, you look really, really calm. And I was like, you have no idea how good it feels to, because I'm, I, I can be fucked up Clint here. There's no mask. Like I, I, I can dish, I'm here to get better. And I don't know who the fuck I am anymore. And I just, Every, every conversation, every interaction that I have, I'm always wargaming it. Yeah. Trying to, trying to, to show the cars that they, they think I'm holding, yeah. not the car, not the hand that I have. And it, there was something about that. And then when I got into the, the hospital uh, and got admitted and, and three days later, the first exercise they had us do, cause I got there on a weekend. And so the game day comes Monday, you know, and one of the first exercises they had us do, they were like, all right, close your eyes. And I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go. And they're like, picture a house. Picture every detail of the house. Now walk around the house. Walk back to the front of the house. There's a way into the house. Go in through the house. Look at the interior. Look at the everything, the layout. And now there's a secret room in this house. Go to that secret room. And for me, the front of the house was very, it was perfect. It was pristine. All the lights are on, all the windows, no cracks in it. And the door was wide open. You could just walk right through. But then when they asked me to, to go to my secret place, I found myself going down into a basement. And there was no, the light came from behind you. There was no actual lights. And then when you got, oh, I looked and appeared through the room, the basement room, I just saw was boxes stacked to the ceiling. Unlabeled boxes of different size and dimensions, like a little tiny path, like a hoarder would create to kind of slither through there. And then we come out of this, this, this exercise and they're like, all right, draw it. And so you draw everything and you, know, you talk about it. But that's when I saw something. Like some of these people, some of these, these soldiers, Marines, airmen that were, you know, had really, really bad childhoods, like molestation. Thing that, you see the way that they drew their house? It was like a caved in roof. There was a hole in the side of the fucking house. There was all these things. It's such a revealing exercise. And I'm glad I took it serious enough because it really was. It showed me what these poems were eventually. And that's how I refer to my book. I'm about to take you through a journey uh, you're you're going to take a deep look inside of yourself by first taking a deep look inside of me. I'm going to show you all my hidden boxes. 
the good, the bad, the demented, the spiritual, the fucking crazy. And after this, ask yourself this one question. How many dudes wrote this book? One guy that it, it got pretty used to just to ask him, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. Good. And that, that was the, that was the broadcast. And so they, we kind of look at each other from time to time. We're like, there's not that we're not that deep, but I think once you get on a good team and you really get to, you go through the shit with the guys, you realize that these guys are, these guys are really deep, profound, you know, spiritual beings for lack of a better word. These guys will kill everything in the room, but the difference that makes the reason why we're different is because we'll feel bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have a moment where we just feel bad about it. And if we replay it back in our head and say, okay, well, would I do anything different? Fuck no, because I'm alive, my team's alive and they're dead. And that's the way it had to be. Yeah. Boom. End of story. Yep. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that may be far that, as far as your day's work that day. Yeah. But that's, that's something that I think uh, in our generation, you have to admit, like when we saw Afghanistan, the way that that failed, oh, that <laughs> the was draw bad. and all that, that was bad. brought up a lot of emotions. And one of those emotions was just this, depression that set in and it wasn't it wasn't so much a, a depressed that it's over it's i'm depressed that it's going to be labeled a failure a failure and i so this is something that again going back to world war ii in vietnam um world war ii they had their day the parade they won yeah vietnam they didn't and i remember one guy that was dumb enough to say that we lost vietnam in front of my dad he pops up and my dad's not an emotional guy. He is, he is a, he was a very, very calm dude, but he had bite to him too. And he pops up and he goes, we didn't lose a goddamn thing. You motherfuckers back home lost the war. And that always stuck with me because that's true. If, yeah. if we're going to keep fighting this, this template of war, which is, it's um, more of an occupation. Yeah. We're going to try to spread democracy, but really what are we doing? We're spending a lot of fucking money and we're, we're, we're using that area to enhance geopolitical pressures on our enemies in that yep. area. It, it's, it's a lot easier to take us seriously when we're right next door. Yep. And so what, what I think this generation has been called to do is to redefine what victory is. And it's, we fight for each day. We fight for each other. And each time, if a war lasts 20 years, you're not going to be there from day one to day zero, at least not on the ground. But you do take that, 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 that green beret, that, that torch, and you move it forward, knowing that everybody who came before you is giving you this legacy. And it's your job to continue that legacy and even take it further. But we are but mortal men in the yeah. end, and we have a breaking point. And instead of letting the baton or the torch hit the ground, we pass it off to another. And they take that day and that day and that day. And that's what we do. We, we, we won our day. We, we all volunteered many times over. We broke our bodies for the honor of killing those responsible. Um, and we're victorious. We, we did our job and you can't wrap that up into a campaign and say it's a win. Well, how many days were we there? Fucking enough. A, <laughs> yeah. 10,000 victories. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the way I look at it as far as when I, I talk to green braids that still have the idea of, I didn't do enough. I didn't, I didn't rotate in there enough. I didn't have enough combat trips. And it's like, look, man, at the end of the day, you went to combat. You brought your guys back home. 
you stood there toe to toe with the enemy and you came back with your teammates. It doesn't matter how many times you copy and paste that process. It doesn't make you any more of a man or any less of a man. And same with the guys that are just coming in that were watching the movies, playing the video games that had this idea of combat. And that was true testament of a man. And they show up and they come through the doors and they're like, Oh fuck, I I missed out. It's like, no son, you didn't. This is your path. You didn't miss out on shit. And for the guys who are joining today, yeah, you know, and I think that's something that only charred men that have been burned can tell somebody who's, who's seeking it is to say, don't worry about this war. Get ready for the next, next. one. Get ready for the next. Because it's coming and you don't know and you've got to be ready. And I think that's even harder. Some yeah. guys like myself, yeah. I never saw myself joining the military. Sure shit didn't see myself joining three times, you know, and um, it, it, we are. There's a certain breed out there that's break glass in case of war. Yeah. We are not a garrison soldier. You put us on the ground. Fuck no. And let us go to work. <laughs> and we thrive in that environment. And I think that's the reason why on and at a certain point, there needs to be an honorable wave to let guys off. Remember that freight train I was telling you about? Yeah, exactly. Like we don't have a 20 year shelf life for most of us in our bodies, especially doing what we're doing. Yeah. And why is it that every MOS, and I don't understand that it's a critical skill and the dollar amount that goes into training us is substantial. Um, but why is it that we have to justify a 15 year retirement plan? If you serve 15 years under war conditions, you deployed five yeah. or six times, yeah. but yet if you get out at 15 without going through a med board or something like that, you're, you're fucked. You're fucked. You get nothing. You get nothing. And you don't even get to take the insurance with your, for your family. That is a crime. Yeah. Here's, here's the other thing. It's been proven and documented well enough that our subculture, our guys, our green berets, special operators, we need a comprehensive two year lookup from head to toe and then another one, another three, and so on. So however you want to break it down, we need consistent medical care and diagnostics through blood panels, mental health. Everything needs to be checked, but they don't do that. How many times have you gone or tried to get anything documented for uh, low testosterone to see if any hormone or anything was off? You couldn't get a, pl- a blood panel test done. You just couldn't mm-hmm. unless you had a school that required it. But there isn't a school. It takes an a really hard determinated individual or determined individual to go there and sit down in front of a doctor and keep fighting for blood work, keep fighting to get things checked out. And then you finally get it and it shows that you're fucked. There's no, they're not going to go there and be like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the prescription for this. They honestly won't. It took me having to go through so much and be on a complete profile to finally have doctors be like, okay, we can refer you to an off post clinic. We are asked to do so fucking much, way more than the conventional soldier, way more than anybody that's serving a conventional platform, but we don't get any of the benefits. Yeah. Like we're, we're expected to perform as elite performers, but all they do is give us a P3 dietitian that says, man, you know what? Make sure you have a little more salmon in your time. Yeah, oh, and that's the other thing too. I was like, I really threw myself into the P3 program back up at group. Yeah. And I had an amazing experience with them. But really what I found was, is I was there as just continued maintenance. Yes. Cause I did the, I did the 30 days inpatient and I did eight weeks outpatient, intense outpatient five days a week. And then after that, it's, I transitioned like maybe once, twice a week talking to a P3 counselor. Yeah. And if there's something that happens in there that when 
I guess I'm kind of a fucking unicorn. I'm, you walk in there and you, you show them your writings and you show them, you know, you explain things and you can show them like, I'm on your team here. And then without breaking any HIPAA rules or anything like that, they take you through scenarios. Let's just say there's this guy yeah, and you know, he's X, Y, and Z in it. And you're like, okay, um, look through your phone and yeah. give him a right. Have him read that and see if that doesn't get him to open up. Yeah. Because one of the biggest problems that they're having is that we are not stupid. Yeah. We're not. And uh, when you sit down with a mental health professional, we know that we're going to be in the hot seat for an hour. We can avoid questions like you wouldn't believe. Exactly. We go right back to the tools that they already taught us. Yeah. Counter accusation, <laughs> counter accusation, deny. Yeah. And then, no, what, like, I'm, I'm curious, what was your childhood like? Well, we're not here to talk about me. No, but seriously, I, I need this to open up to you. Like, we do that shit all the time. Yeah. And some guys just go in there and clam up and they don't want to talk. And I got tired of um, knowing that guys are making it through the right doors, but it takes a, it, we're going to need a prying bar to get these guys to open up about it. Yep. Trying to game, you try to game everything. Yep. Mm-hmm. Always trying to game everything. Yeah. I had a yep. guy ask that in Laurel Ridge. Yeah. I, yeah. How are you gaming this? <laughs> You're not. I'm not. Dude. I'm not. I'm fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the other thing too. <laughs> in the hospital, um, I knew that I was taking it really serious um, and throwing myself into it. But once they started asking me if I wanted to do the EMDR, which is like that mm-hmm. rapid eye movement, I couldn't follow the light and go into like yes. some sort of hypnosis. So I closed my eyes and held the paddles where they, yeah. they Same. vibrate in each hand. And what you find is your, your eyes are blinking or rotating left and right while you have your eyeballs down mm-hmm. pretty much uh, exactly what you do during REM sleep, mm-hmm. but it's a way to unlock some subconscious. Yep. And so we started doing there and they're like, Oh, tell me about this. And they just say, continue with that. Well, you know, then dad, you know, he took me to Fort Sill and I deployed and keep going with that. Well, then I got back and you know, he, it was, everything was great. It, he, I, we were best friends and then he died. Keep going with that. And you'd be surprised. He, it, like right now I'm telling you something that actually did happen in my life. Yeah. Dad died shortly after I got back from um, Iraq uh, towards the beginning of 2004 after the invasion in dad who had never spoke about Vietnam. I didn't have a seat at that table. I didn't have a basis of understanding. The first time we were going down to Altmogi where I was born to visit my Mimi, um, his mother, he, he mentioned something about Vietnam. And I was just sitting there like my jaw open, like, holy fuck, dad just talked about Vietnam to me. It's like being a made man in the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> Mafioso. Yeah. And I, we, our relationship just blossomed. And about that time, um, dad, told me he wasn't feeling well one day. And I don't know about how your, your guys, you know, generation was men have raised you, but in my house, if someone says they're not feeling well, they're about to die. Yeah. And this was exactly the case there. I rushed him to the hospital. They did a bunch of diagnose, uh, diagnostics. And then I was in the room with him when the doctor came in and goes, Mr. Dula, I hate to tell you about the, uh, inform you of this, but you have cancer and a lot of it. And it's very aggressive. And I looked at my dad and he kind of racked back and he goes, okay, um, just do what you can. And Six weeks later, he was dead. I'm, I'm cancer from head to toe, Agent Orange exposure. But look what dad did. And I hope people can learn from his experience, which is he got back from Vietnam. He was told it never happened. He didn't even sign into the VA. He never went to the VA once because he was, he was working, you know, and had benefits from the state probably right after he graduated college. And if he had just gone into the VA once, and told them that he was there during this time and this time, two deployments to Vietnam. And they would have automatically screened him 
for Agent Orange exposure. It happened to my uncle Jim. He's probably one of the most successful men I've ever met. Um, he had a rough childhood. He overcame it. And now he's just, he's probably the richest guy I freaking know. But he, and he never talked about Vietnam and he never, because he was drafted. He went over there against his will and he did what he had to do. And he came home and he couldn't wait to put it behind him. But here he yep. is in his sixties, um, having heart problems and they tie it back to agent orange exposure. So here's a guy with all the resources and uh, you could ever hope to have now going to the VA because no one knows agent orange better than. It's funny you bring that up because I was looking into, uh, for one of my own good friends whose father, um, was a service member in Vietnam and yeah, he was down there, had exposure to agent orange and come to find out for a vast majority of service members in that time period, your children now have benefits because of agent orange exposure. So if you were born with uh, all sorts of different things that can be linked back to agent orange exposure, there's a lot of people out there that are, are able to get benefits because of that. And if you don't actively look into the regulations into laws and new things and new laws that get enacted. Like you're never going to realize just how much government has out there, just money sitting there for you to, that you might be able to access. Um, even right now for us, our generation of guys, uh, our version of agent orange, the burn pits. If you don't take time to register right now for the burn pit registry, you're not doing yourself and your family any favors. Let me just talk about this real quick because some people out there aren't going to know what burn pits were unless they were in the early stages yeah. of um, Iraq. Basically the shitters got to go somewhere. So you have these little tubs, like the oil pans underneath your LMTVs sitting there. You, everybody shits in them. And then it's your job as a E1, like I was when I went to Iraq to grab it with a hook, pull it out, throw some JP eight on it yeah. and make a long stick into a short stick. Yeah. And you did that with trash. You did that with, you know, wag bags. Yeah. Yep. And let's not even talk about everything that was already in the sand of Iraq. Oh yeah. yeah. So we may find that there is an equivalent, um, effect like cancers and all this stuff. Maybe it's jammers. Maybe we'll have to stick a camera because yeah. we sat next to jammers for hours yeah. on end. But I will say this mental health is probably more like our, agent orange because we lost, I, I, I'm just going to throw out a number here. I, I watched this guy who ended up being a Marine who, you know, I didn't get into his backstory, but he was talking from San Quentin. And this was uh, something I ran into. See, I didn't do any research on veteran suicide when I wrote the book. Didn't need to. And I was just telling yeah. my story yeah. but afterwards. Yeah. And I was like, if you're going to get out there and talk to people about this, you should probably see what other people have to say about it. And even though I haven't deep dived it like I should, the little nugget that I grabbed off of YouTube was this, this guy in San Quentin. He's talking about all these veterans that ended up in the prison cells mm -hmm. and he's talking about, you need a way to deprogram these guys. And, you know, and Sergeant Major Herrera, um, fucking warrior, man, three purple hearts. He was one of those last guys wounded in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, he, him and I become good friends and he has a great analogy. He's like, you know, think about NASCAR. You have this high performance machine. It gets broken down to the, the bolt and pan shipped to the racetrack, put back together, you race it like you stole it and you break it back down and you transport it to the next track and this goes on and on. Operators, they are, they are expected. You're lucky if you can get a tire changed or maybe some gas. We, we really, uh, that freight train analogy is good for this. We, just, yeah. we sent these guys and we just said, go until you can't go any further. That's, dude, that's such, I mean, when we came back from our 1920 trip, 
that's exactly I had like complete breakdown. Like I cannot do this anymore. Like just basically go and talk to the PA. Like I can't go, I can't do this another day. Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. And the, um, but it gets to that point. Where it does. So, yeah. and here's the thing. What the fuck, dude? I talk about it in the book because it is so closely related to the story with me and my dad. And uh, so when I got, when I left active duty, I was told two things. Clint, I know the guys who get out and I know the guys who don't get out. You're one of the guys that don't get out. You love this job. It loves you back. And I hope, and I understand that you're going back to be in your wife's life because she needs you more than we do right now. But I hope you can find your way back to us. And I was like, me too, but I have to let go. And I have to walk. Well, one of the, the things was after being geographically separated from your wife for seven and a half years, I mean, we saw each other like four times a year um, when I was in 82nd for three years. Then we didn't see each other once while I was in the Q course. And then when we got, I got orders to go to 10th group instead of third group because my language was French. I got pissed because all I knew about 10th group at that time is they were taking over the Africa mission. Yeah. And I didn't want to go to Africa. I wanted a piece of Afghanistan. I wanted to fight where Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great. And, right. you know, yeah, I wanted to get it on with some of the people that are respected in the business for being the hardest, yeah, for hardest assholes to kill. Yeah. yeah. And so I got back from back to back deployments. Like I said, like 30, 40 days after we got back off that combat rotation, I'm a civilian and I'm hugging my family in the airport. Well, I was now in a home with my wife for the first time living, living in the same place as my wife. And I was early on, I was just trying to get my routine down. So I get up in the morning, I'd make my shake. I'd go to the gym, you know, I did do a lot of stretching back then just to stay mobile. And then I'd go out to the range and shoot for hours on end. But, um, my wife came up to me one morning while I was making my, um, my protein shake and she grabbed me, uh, underneath the tricep and gave me a squeeze. And I instantly looked at her and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, don't fuck with me. I, like, I haven't even had my coffee yet. She's like, no, you don't remember, do you? And I was like, okay, I know I didn't get drunk last night and I should <laughs> remember everything, but no, tell me what I'm missing. And she's like, at 3 a.m. I got up and you weren't, or I woke up and noticed you weren't in bed. So I, I didn't think anything of it, but it, like 30 minutes went by and you didn't come back to bed. So I got up and I walked around the house looking for you and I didn't see you anywhere. So I was walking back into the our bedroom to get the phone to see where did you, where did you go? And that's when I heard something coming from uh, our bathroom and she walked into the bathroom and then the, the toilet had its own little room and a little door off to the right. And when she opened that little side room, she said, I found you, you were curled around the toilet bawling uncontrollably like a baby. And I knew that she wouldn't get around by something like that, but it, I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't kind of like, what? Yeah. And so fast forward, maybe maybe half a week later, I'm sitting there in my office building out my calendar. And that's when I, that's when it hit me, November 17th. She found me at 3 a.m. on November 17th. And that was the day my dad died in 2004. But this is 2012. And I had never been home on that date. And here's the thing is that I may do this every November 17th, but I'm doing it subconsciously. And I don't receive any of the benefits of actually acknowledging it healing it and getting it, getting it heard. And I think that's what a lot of the the grief does. It doesn't go away. It sits there in the subconscious, bringing us back to the EMDR thing, which is when all of a sudden you unlock these memories. I could remember smell sound, you know, everything was in there. And here I'm a guy thinking I got it lucky because I have a bad memory or I don't tend to hold on to things or retain information for long, but it's all there. Your body's protecting you in ways that 
we don't comprehend. Yeah. And that's why we block things off. I had, and I sat there with the, after that, I was like, holy fuck. So I went back to the room and I did a trauma timeline. No one asked me to do this, but it was a, I had a sheet of paper and I drew out. I was like, okay. So I pretty much said, okay, where does trauma begin for a soldier? Okay, we'll go 2003, Iraq. And I covered everything up to my hospitalization. And underneath these things, I wrote like feelings or thoughts that kind of were reoccurring around those times or kind of could summarize those times. And the last thing I wrote on the, the trauma sheet was, I feel like I haven't done enough. And so you go through a couple of days That's, later and we're doing yeah. this group and that subject gets brought up and, you know, keep in mind, I, everybody was there for a reason. I was the only combat arms guy in the, in the hospital at that time. And when they heard me say, well, I just feel like I haven't done enough. And they kind of all looked at me and they're like, Clint, you've done a lot more than most. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I still have all my arm, I have both arms, both right. legs. I'm still in my first marriage. I'm not the, you're not a real GB until you're on your third wife, you know, yep. that generation. Um, but they, she dug a little deep. She goes, when will you done enough? And again, I was very calm this entire time. It was almost like just being in a meditated state. I was very, very accepting of the environment and how appreciative I was to have this opportunity. But then I barked at her and it, it freaked everybody on the room. I was like, well, I'm fucking dead. And I just, it jumped out from somewhere down deep. And I was like, oh shit. And so I went back to that trauma timeline and I was like, you know, there's stuff going on before the war, your, your childhood. And that's when I asked myself a question, when was the last time do you remember being that kid on the farm? Carefree, happy looking underneath rocks. And I traced it back to, um, right at about the time that our, my grandfather died and we moved to Tulsa and then dad shortly left my mom and us for another woman who had two kids. And that was, that was a hard, hard truth, which is, you know, being told at such a young age, well, you're the man of the house. What? How am I supposed to be a father to my brother and my sister? And I, you know, a, a man of the house, I, I need to see what that's like. I'm just now growing into my body. I'm just now understanding. Like anyway. So when I did that, I again, covered everything from my parents divorcing in fifth grade up to nine 11 because right, right out of the go, go to war. Um, and it was, it was astounding that there were so many tick marks and lines and thoughts. And these papers were kind of long, a little bit like legal paper. And I put them side by side. And there's something when you look at something that's very intricate and long, you look at the, the first entry and the last entry almost instantly before you start to follow it. And the first entry after dad split was, why wasn't I good enough? And that's when it hit me hard as anything in the world, like a mule kicking me in the, in the dome, which was, that's the same thing why wasn't I good enough has now turned into, I haven't done enough. It's, it was already there. Some of us run to war with a war already going on inside. And yep. if you're really going to go into your mental health and your most hidden boxes and your most secret rooms, you have to acknowledge that there's probably stuff left over from your childhood that has used war trauma to stay relevant and stay in the game because it doesn't go away. And it doesn't matter how many times you wake up in the middle of the night and you cry or you get drunk and shit faced and ball your eyes out to a teammate uh, or fight as many dudes at the bar as you can. You're you're not consciously sitting with that emotion and that experience long enough to get the healing properties that come with owning it. Yeah. Like, no, I'm, no, I'm not. Everything in my life is me. I'm the one who thinks that threats are around every corner. I'm the one that's allowing myself to get worked up in traffic. And it's because you drive down to fucking Tampa in Iraq 
eight, nine, 10 hours a day, just waiting to blow up. And, and you luckily you don't, yeah. but yeah, that now you're in traffic and you, you're boxed in and you get this panic attack. Like I told myself a long time ago, especially when I was in the trance, I was like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die on my feet. Like that's the only thing I asked God for. I was like, just let me die well on my feet. I don't want to be taken out of the game by an IED. No, then that's something that is um, really, I try to explain to a lot of guys that I served with during that, that time period in Iraq during the surge where a vast majority of guys were driving down those roads constantly under the threat of blowing up. And then they come back home and they're like, well, I didn't blow up, so there's nothing there. No, no, no. You're still fucked up. You still have trauma to unpack. Trust me. Nobody gets out of that experience without being fucked up. That's like having a fucking revolver to your head and constantly pulling the trigger. And guys think that because they didn't blow up or they didn't see X amount of combat that, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like, no, dude, you deserve to get mental health help. You deserve to talk about it. Because there's a shitload of times where I'm driving and I get in, the, especially if it's just a straightaway, heartbeat starts fucking pumping. I start looking and scanning and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, why am I scared? Why am I getting really fucking panicky right now? And it's like, that stays with you. That yeah. shit stays with you. And if you're listening to this right now and that was your experience, you're not any less of a fucking veteran, any less than a fucking service member. That shit stays with you, man. Go talk to somebody. The only way we get better is by being honest, being vulnerable, and talking to a healthcare provider. You can't unpack all this stuff by yourself. I wish you could. I wish you could just take a wand and wish it around, and then boom, you're cured. You have to get help. You have to be courageous enough to say, I deserve better, and I'm going to get help. Yeah. And so there's this... uh I write about it in the book. And so just to describe the book to people that are listening is you're going to find a narration. Um, so all these, all these writings were part of my, what I did to, to unpack these boxes, never expecting to put them into a story, never expecting anybody to read them. But it was after my, you know, as I was leaving the hospital three days before I left the hospital, my chain of command had called me one time. They literally left me alone. They, but there was a, an, a sensitive item unaccounted for. And yet everybody has to sign sworn statements. Um, and they sent that to me and they called me and say, Hey, Clint, we're not trying to throw a monkey wrench in this, but if you could just print this off, sign it, send it back to us. Appreciate it. So I went up to my doc and I was like, Hey doc, um, I have to, I need access, special assets to my phone. Um, and he's like, yeah, that shouldn't be a problem. So in between, I, I pretty much used my lunch break that day. And I, the nurse got my phone out of the control safe and I walked outside where I could get a signal and I was just bombarded. Like there was thousands of group messages, emails, voicemails, all this stuff. And that was my first time going, no wonder you can't take a break. <laughs> the office is tethered to your hand. Yeah. And it was so good not to have my cell phone around, but I was like, okay, I'm like, don't get, you can look at all that bullshit later and it's probably all bullshit. So I got on the email, signed it, sent it back. And there was like a dozen or so voicemails, which I don't usually get voicemails as much as I get text messages and, yeah. you know, signal and WhatsApp and all that stuff and emails. But one of them was only 30 minutes old. Um, and it came from one of my best friends, in the entire world uh, and former teammates. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm going to listen to this real quick. And Brian was on the other end of the line and he, he's like, Clint, 
where are you, man? No one, he goes, I don't know where you are in the world. I don't know what you're doing, but we're all trying to get a hold of you. And we've, we've, we've tried everything. I don't want it to, I didn't want this to have to happen over a voicemail, but you need to know. Um, Evan killed himself. He didn't report into work on Monday and they found him at his home and he, had, he, he committed suicide. And that right there, you know, how hard it was to call your teammate back and your best friend and say, the reason why you guys haven't been able to get a hold of me was 27 days before Evan was successful. I tried to do the same thing and I'm actually in the hospital right now under suicide watch. And I just felt this profound, like I let you, I let you down, man. I'm sorry. And I let Evan down and, you know, I go back and I read, but you didn't, it's important to acknowledge that. Well, that's what got me off the sideline into the game. And after I was like, no, that's that rounds down range. What's done is done, but something needs to be done to fix this. And if you hand me the book or you can pull up prisoner of war. So when I was in uh, Afghanistan, I was running the RTT uh, South. So, you know, total from a, uh, command and control. We're basically Afghan 911 with uh hellfires and bombs. <laughs> and so um we're just we're just doing what we do. And um I started to spiral out of control. We were it's there. Funny. For I want to say both of the ones you highlighted mm-hmm. <laughs> already got marked. <laughs> yeah. But you know I, I had been playing around with this. This is before I was hospitalized, before I started seeking help. But I was writing as an outlet at this point. And I go back to my container um get online real quick, say hello to the wife on Facebook or whatever. And I saw a couple old teammates of mine doing 22 pushups a day to create awareness for veteran suicide. And I don't know about you guys, but when I saw it, it, it made me so mad. Yep. It made me yep. so mad. Yep. It's like, that is, that is not helping anything. That does not help the families. That does not help the, the people suffering. That does not help the doctors or clinicians trying to breach these people. All you're doing is 22 pushups in front of a fucking camera, bro. And I picked up my phone and I had that little note app and I let my thumbs just run wild. And then I chugged a bottle of z popped a bunch of antihistamines and tried to knock myself out for three hours before I got up and did it all again. And when I woke up the next morning, I had written this thing called Prisoner of War, which I'm about to read. And it scared me so much that this is how strong the ego is. It, my ego, that I could not differentiate between my ego, the voice in my head, the voice in my heart, and then that, 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 that essence that observes all things. I'm not any of those things. I'm, I'm observing these things. But anyway, that's something that came later on. And we talk about it towards the backhand of the book, reaching a higher level of uh, awareness through consciousness. But I read these words and it was like, no, Clint, that's not you. You're a creative guy. You are just trying to, I don't know, be, be the guy who can try to make sense out of something you, you're not personally going through. And so I'll read the words to you. And, um, this is what I was thinking in that moment when I heard about uh, Evan dying was um, what if I had shown this to him? What if he could read these words and know that he's not alone? And what if I could accept those words in August of 2020 would January 15, 2021, when my wife finds me with a gun against my head, would that have happened? Who knows? But this is prisoner of war by Clinton, but <laughs> make a little light of it. So, um, Prisoner of war, barred and caged within my mind, a prisoner of my own design. The guards of guilt, the warden of war. My fellow inmates are the disfigured faces of the dead, watching me with empty eyes. When the lights go out, the voices whisper words of torment in my head. Shame is my sentence. My crime is surviving. 
For I, a lesser man without children, lived while better men's children are held no more. I dig a tunnel of self-destruction in my effort to escape. My tools are drugs and alcohol laced with self-pity. Anything to avoid the now and the guilt I've become. Deeper and deeper, I crawl into a wall of isolation. Those who check on me see only the mask I've left behind. The voice they hear is nothing more than forgery of hope. Simple pre-recorded responses claiming all to be fine. The truth is, I was never really here because I never really came home. The man you knew is captured by the past, unable to see a future free from sorrow's heavy chains. Fresh depression served daily my only meal. All that came before my imprisonment has long since faded from my memory. Sitting here alone in the dark, I hold in my hand the very key to my jail cell's door. For I am a prisoner of my own design, barred and caged within my own mind. Institutionalized by my pain and looking for a way out, I pull my key's trigger, bang, leaving you all in shock and disbelief. And so that's, it's still hard for me to read those words. Um, but it, there is something so freeing about, you, you write something down that's so personal. And it, it's disturbing to you to say that maybe this is how I, 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 this may be where I'm at on my emotional, mental, spiritual map right now. But it's something about getting it outside of you. You yeah. can, you don't have to carry it around with you. You can go back and reread it. You can revisit it. It's almost like you can, you can just put it on your bookshelf and it's there if you need it. If you want to go back and revisit it, if you're in one of those moods and you need to kind of, I'm going through the depressive state and I'm going to basically show myself that I've been here before. And then maybe I'll read some of my more lighter heart stuff and realize this is a, this is a, there's peaks and valleys and I'm in the valley right now. Yeah. You, you can pull yourself out by revisiting your own words. And the, the thing is when I read that, I identify with it. And I think that is something all of us, and that share this common thread can literally feel that same emotion, feel the same torment and identify with it at such a deep level and say, Holy shit. Like how did, did I, you fucking, it's, it's sitting it's right, right there. there. Like, no, I could have written that. Yeah. I could have, I, I identify being in that same space. And, but in retrospect, I just liked it. And I even put it in the book. I was like, in retrospect, looking back on it, if those guys hadn't done 22 pushups a day, and done what they could with what they had available. I would not have reacted to it. I would not have wrote it down. And that was a smoking gun in the hospital. Once my wife sent me my writings, cause I was like, you know, I was trying to talk to the docs and counselors and I was like, I, I, I can't, it's like, I write and I've already written this out and it's probably in the best way. I couldn't even regurgitate it if I tried, but let my wife send me my writings and then I'll show I'll share them with you. And so I did. And um, I started sharing with some of the other patients. And what I found was people understood they, they now had something to say, you know, I haven't gone through what you went through, but I understood your words and I can see how now, why it's so hard to talk about these things. Yeah. And it's not a war story. It's, it's, it's a repercussion of going through the meat grinder and being packaged and sent to market. It's and a story of sit a there real and spoil human being. on the shelf. Yeah. It's a, it's, and that's what poetry. And it, I think it gets, so I'm not a, trained poet. Um, but really when you think about it and, and you said this earlier and I wanted to, I wanted to stop you, but who is to say that you need a certain education to be a poet, to be a writer? I had the same mindset. Mm -hmm. I had the same mindset when I wanted to help and give it's a self-governing limitation yes. that you were labeled as, as a child, as you a, took it on as your personality and, yeah. and you kind of used it. And that's why we're always trying to push past and climb to new heights. And you mentioned it earlier too, which is like, we, 
okay, I'm going to be a, a soldier. No, I can't be a soldier. I'm going to be a paratrooper. Yeah. I'm going to be a Green Beret. I don't know. I'm a Green Beret. I have to be a scuba guy. I have yeah. to fucking be a Halo guy. And once you have those, I have to have rank yeah. and awards and all this stuff. And what it is, is just this never ending search to feel complete. Yeah. And I think that's what this book really does. And I was really happy the way uh, working with my editor, she was a, a veteran of the Australian Air Force who I met through a mutual friend of a friend. And she was a poetry major, full-time editor. I gave her all my stuff. And that's when I was sitting there like, oh shit, here we go. Now there's someone who studied this stuff. Yeah. Now there's somebody who really maybe even uh, collegiately a snob about yeah, yeah. this oh, stuff. Well, now I have to be vulnerable and give you my yeah. work. And I, I asked Mel, her name is Melanie Hill. And uh, I asked Mel about 90 days after she had everything. And we were going through the editing process, which was robust because I didn't know grammar and punctuation. <laughs> like, so I started where I could and she was able to help me give each one of them like a, its own kind of uh, cosmetic yeah. polishing without changing the words. And she's like, I was like, so who do I compare to figuring that she would just have like three or four names that she could say, well, Clint, you sound, you're, you're somewhere in between this. And when I heard her say, I've never read anything like it. And I think you've created a, a new genre. You found a gap in the market. Yeah. These things I was like, good. And it wasn't from a prideful, like good. It was mm-hmm. this, if this is truly something new, then we can hope that it can have a different result. Something has to change. We have to put, we have to create something in order for something to change. And one thing I'm challenging the rest of you guys out there to do is find your artistic expression, find your voice on paper, do whatever you got to do, but start doing it and do it for yourself. Yeah. And if you find that you truly do have a talent for it, share it. Even if only you share it with me and I'm just the guy emailing you back and forth saying, this is good. You know, I had a friend of mine who's in the club, he's a GB, he's up in a, Ohio now. And I've never met him. It's a big club. And, but anyway, I was posting some of these things on the chat group. And the cool thing, the, the, the interesting thing about SF guys is you can put something, they're talking about dick ball and pussies on the chat. <laughs> and all of a sudden you throw something profound in there. No one says a word. Yes. Yeah. And they days. just go back, they just go back to talk and shop and all this other it's stuff. So true. But what happens is, and I hear I'm thinking I'm way off the mark, you know, but one by one, on one, the private, on the one, private message. Yeah, one by one, whether right. out by the bonfire at night and they see me out there standing by myself and they, Hey, Clint, you know, that thing you wrote, I really identified with it, man. And, uh, keep doing it. And then one guy, uh, the one I'm telling you about from Ohio, he sent me a poem and, um, it was the only thing that I had read that was similar to stuff that I was writing. Yeah. So then it showed me, it's not unique to me. It just hasn't been. It hasn't been attempted yet in our generation or maybe generations past. You know, you got the Ballad of the Green Beret up there. That's poetry. Yes. They put it to song and it is something still today. We we take great pride in. But where is our generation's Barry Sadler? Where is our, and I don't think it's going to come through a better rendition of a Ballad of the Green Beret. I think it's going to come through unloading yes. what's war like without telling war stories and find a way to communicate that point to people that not only been through it, but people that are trying to help someone through yep. it. We need, and like where I was saying earlier, like everybody, and I just recently saw it posted on LinkedIn, uh, older green beret posted a small snippet of, um, John Wayne's, the green berets. Mm-hmm. And the thread was like five, million people just loving it. Oh, love, love the greens. It's such a true testament of our fighting green berets. I'm like, no, it's not. 
That's not who we are. You're off the mark there, You're Pilgrim. Off. That's who we were in that time and place. The Green Berets that are part of our generation, the guys that we grew up and were mentored and developed by, are some hood-ass Gs, some very different. Break not, glass in case of war. That's right. We are not Boy Scouts. And we owe it to ourselves and to those guys to break that stigma and start talking about our experience in a healthy way and get that information out there. You're 100% correct. We need the next very Well, the two things that really made the, the movie The Green Beret iconic and special for its time, it was the only movie made about Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for John Wayne being John Wayne and saying, well, we're going to make this movie anyway— that was a that was a huge thing because guys could guys could rally around it. Guys could yeah. relate to it in a time that they needed yeah. to relate and rally around something. And you, this is me over is just the first transmission. I'm hoping that we can follow the book with uh, Regent Lima Charlie. How us? Oh, hell yeah! And then close it out. And that's basically getting everybody to send me their stuff. And I we'll was just gonna it. say we'll narrate it and uh, we'll, we'll tie it all together and we'll polish it up and get it back out there. But tell a wide aperture, a wider aperture yeah. of more stories and feelings. Just driving home the point that this is these are things common to all in yeah. some way, shape, or form. You didn't have to get blown up by ID to have be stressed out in a car. Yeah. You know, um, and then hopefully we can close out uh the, the three book series with um have you same out. And that's when I would like to bring the VA, SOCOM, um, P3, and all these 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 people that have a vested interest in yeah. seeing us through physically, mentally, and emotionally, um, give them a voice at the table, say, Well, this is what we're doing, and we're seeing these results. And this is what we're going to do for the next war. Guys are going to deploy, but they're also going to give them a breakdown cycle, like that 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 war cry afterwards. Yeah, get it out. Yeah, get it out. Like you don't need to be going home to your family. And I know it sucks, and that's the reason why we always say we're fine is because we just, we just spent back. <laughs> six months in Afghanistan, and we'll be back in Afghanistan or Iraq in the next six months. And every minute that we're home is one minute that we're not spending with our families because we're sitting here doing bullshit paperwork. So everybody goes, we're good. 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 Boom. Just so they can get home. Yeah. And that shouldn't be the emphasis. In my opinion, um, the emphasis should be on making sure that they are given a chance to find the off switch prior to going home. Yeah. And I think that's something I've heard many people say is, um, you know, they, they teach you where the on switch is, but they don't show you where the off switch is. And that's why you hear guys in the community, if you're not a part of it, always saying, you know, he's just, he's just switched on right now. He's got the, the right mindset in the wrong place. And I talk about that also. It's like, it's called a tipping point, the way I described it. And it basically is, is where the operator, the soldier, the Marine, the airman, the SEAL, whatever you want to the Rangers, they find their identity overseas. That's the environment which they become acclimated to and they feel most normal in. And when you come home, this is the place where you feel like you're deployed to. You just can't wait to get back. And even though the war's over, I heard you say, like, there's days where you wake up, I wish I could go back to Afghanistan. And it's not because of the the carnage. It's not because of the killing. It's just because life makes sense for us over there. It's easier. If you need a piece of furniture, build it. (laughs) If you want a piece of terrain, terrain, take it. I feel like I would thrive over there more so than here. Here you can't go out and get, you know, pick up a, an entire village and give them medical aid and, and yeah. books and, and, you know, go kill some very bad people that are coming in their village in the middle of the night and torturing children. Like I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't get off on, you know, that satisfaction. Oh yeah. 
I was never a guy that bullied anybody. In fact, I had to fight at a young age because uh, the older kids saw me as a loner and I was an easy target. So I had to learn how to fight pretty, pretty quickly. And they, all I'm saying is this, is if we look at not only what caused it and the symptoms, and I think that's the difference right now is we're looking at symptoms of war and you need to do a deep dive into your past to say, well, is this now just something that has been exacerbated or worsened by something you already had inside of you? A feeling of I'm not good enough turning into, I'm going to keep deploying until I lose an arm and validate that I was in the war or I lose my life and yep. truly come home a hero. And that's when thank you for your service will actually apply to me. Exactly. We, we've seen it in our, in our group of guys. Like it's never, it's never good enough to leave when you have everything, when you can just walk away, guys will continue going until they lose something. And now it's like, okay, I can walk away. I, 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 I finally have the injuries but that I need. Sergeant Major, I was telling you about Carson. Yeah. Freaking three purple hearts. You know, and you know these guys too. And there was one guy in seventh group um, who was wounded in combat. He, he got, he got shot and then he recovered and he, he all he was doing is chasing, like he, he wanted to be back in Afghanistan with his team for that next deployment. So talk about getting shot, going to Walter Reed. How much, how much of a badass warrior, you know, all in, no, no, no quit, all go. And what happened? He went right back with his team and he recovered in an immaculate amount of time, was probably hiding a lot more than what he let on. Yep. And he got killed yep. as soon as he went back. Imagine being that dude's wife and kids. Imagine being that, that team. And how many, how many guys were like, well, we can't stop him. We have to support him on this. But after what's, what happened is the way the, the book ends on his the chapter of his life, I would, I would have a hard, hard time not blaming myself or something like that. We celebrate it and we cheer it on and we push for it when in reality our command and our brothers need to say, no, yeah, you, you are more important to us here for your family. We got to get you healthy, but we make every single stride to give them the ability to do it and go back and do it. But we don't stop and say, no. We're He's, thoroughbreds, we, man. We, we Imagine this, you, you race this horse and it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful horse and it runs and it, it wins and it, it, but it hurt its leg and exactly. getting off the trailer right before the race. You're at a, you're at a moment there too, where once you put that horse in the stable, He's going to run yeah. hurt or not. That door opens and he knows only one thing, go time. Yeah. And that's the part that we have to do a better job at as far as being able to acknowledge that these guys, if you let them run, they're going to fucking run until they break their leg and we have to put them down. Yeah. What a waste. All we needed was like three or four months to rehab this thing. And he could have ran many more races and probably won more. Maybe he's not the same after he broke his leg. Maybe we need to retire him. Again, going back to that at what point? And I think guys are sitting there like, well, I got to stick around here for 20 years anyway. And I hate Garrison. Yeah. So I'll just keep deploying. Yeah. It, it works until it doesn't work. And, you know, SF guys, Green Berets in particular, if we if we end up on the blotter, we do something bad. Oh yeah. We blow that mother off its hinges. Yeah. It, it's a, it's, it's never an easy, it's like, never like, Oh, you know, this guy got a speeding ticket. No, no, this guy burned down his house and, and shot, shot his wife's car. <laughs> yeah. 
because he came home and she was with another dude. Like it's no, it's no little things that we do. And the problem is, is that, um, I was looking at, uh, I, I, so at the heart of the book, and I'd like to keep people in on this is really at the essence of what the book's message is trying to deliver to the people that need to hear it. It's, um, Oh, what is it called? Handsome faced hand grenades, handsome faced hand grenades. I was trying to look for a way to, 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 you know, stroke our ego, but at the same time, give a real world example of three people, three GB stories. And I talk about a guy who, and I don't mention names and I do out of the respect for the families and stuff. I just first and like, you know, handsome face hand grenade. Number one, he detonated in uh, a public area and civilians were unfortunately killed. Handsome face hand grenade. Number two waited for his family to be out of the house on the weekend, sent him somewhere and offed himself and wasn't found until Monday. Oh. Handsome face hanger. Number three being myself. I woke up around my chain of command, not allowing me to fail. And they got me and they asked me, they didn't tell me I was going where they go. What do you need in this moment? And I said, I don't know who the fuck I am anymore. I need to go someplace and find myself. And they're like, that's all you had to say, brother. They took me to the ER. They took me to Panama. That team picked me up once I was released. And why is this happening to us? And you have to ask yourself, and maybe this is where we have to approach it from a little bit different angle. But the skinny of it is, is, what do we all have in common? We are all honorable, explosive warriors. And when warrior leaders start doing some of the most dishonorable things that you can think of, it, it leads me down the road of questioning to say, maybe in the end, it's our honor that makes us so susceptible to suicide. Because I'll tell you from firsthand, when you hear about someone who, you know, kills civilians or kills someone in the road rage, we all hear it and go, damn, dude. But we, secretly, we kind of say, well, I knew that guy and he was not crazy at all. Yeah. He just, he had a bad day and, and that's that. And then, but we all kind of know and behind our, uh, behind our egos was like, well, I'm not totally stable either. And if I, if he could do it, I could do it. And then if you see yourself with your metaphorical hand grenade hitting the ground around you and your family and your friends and your community, well, I can tell you one thing that these all, every person who's committed suicide, I mean, this is the thing I was going to talk about earlier, the, the guy was San Quentin. When I heard this number, keep in mind, it was 2016. We lost about 7,000 people in both wars. And in 2016, we had already lost over 70,000 service members to suicide. And that was in 16. Yeah. And the epidemic seems to be only growing. Yeah, it's already been uh, statistically like shown that we've lost, we now have lost more service members, veterans after like we have more people that have died because of suicide than service members we lost during the wars. And that's fucking nuts. And that's not even on anybody's radar. No No one's tracking the numbers. No one talks about it. And I I even wrote a book on the subject and I didn't even know that until the end. So what, do, what does every veteran who has committed suicide have in common? They all show that they were willing to die to protect us. And if that grenade hits the ground, I know what you guys would do. And I know what I would do. I would jump on it, especially if it's my own grenade. Yeah. yeah. No question about it. Right. Oh, yeah. I fucked up. I'm checking out now, yeah. but I'm not taking anybody with me. And that's kind of where guys are at. They can see themselves potentially losing control and hurting their family or hurting civilians and dragging the regimental honor, you know, through the mud through the mud, and they say, okay, well, it's pretty, pretty simple. I'm left with one honorable choice. Take myself out before I'm allowed to, you know, they're going to say, oh, what a shame. And we should have known, you know, more about this situation. But like I said, you're victim of your own success. They don't look for that kind of uh, problem in something that's performing so well. Yeah. And that's the reason why you're being, uh, you know, 
rock star quarterback one day and then you'll be dead the next time. But I didn't see that coming. It's because you don't get to see what's going on outside of work. And that's probably the reason why the guy never wants to go home and he's always at work. And you know, like, I I mean, I don't even have kids, man, but I I like to get out of here and go hang out with my wife. You have four kids and a beautiful wife, but you live here. Every time I come up here, you're here. Every guy that's had real life, big time issues. I have been able to look at one single thing that you can pinpoint right off the bat. They don't want to go home. Every last one of them will find a way to just stick around or come up with an excuse. It's like, dude, here's one you won't find in the book. I talk about it. Uh, it was one of my earlier analogies. I didn't put it in the book, but I'll, I'll mention it here. Um, the, the military machine is exactly that. It's a machine. And we forget that we're oil. We're the life force inside this mechanism that allows it to run. And it's and this byproduct here is death, destruction, and freedom. That's the byproduct of the, the military machine. But there's something going about into the, the machine is oil. Once you go into machine, you realize the machine's been around before you were there. You, you were there to facilitate, help it run so it doesn't break down. And then if you need to be pulled out, you can pull out and you can go be put in another machine that has a different byproduct in it. But guys that go past the tipping point and they identify, like I say in the book, with a piece of green headgear, it's almost as dangerous as saying, well, I'm a fuel pump. And I've talked to many sergeant majors who are like, I'm a fuel pump. Like, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. You guys wouldn't last three days without me here. Uh, you know? And that's a dangerous thing. It's one, it's funny and it's communal and you're like, okay. Yeah. Um, but how many guys do over 20 years and they, they commit suicide within the first week of being out and exactly. they have achieved high rank and pers- it, they just don't have, an, this is all they know. Right now, if you go to any treatment center, um, especially the ones that cater to our demographic, the scary thing is it, you're not seeing a lot of us. You're seeing our CSMs, our high ranking officers. Um, they get burnt out and they get, they're fucked up just like we are. Mm-hmm. And I'm, when I was at my last one, it was shocking to me to see that all amongst me <laughs> were that exact type of guy, the guy that just stayed in. And then right before they're about to leave, they realize, Oh, fuck, I can't do this anymore. I need help. I need fucking help. And well, and then there's a stigma too. Let's say you're an E7 like I am and you're being brought up on a med. They yeah. didn't force me out. They waited till I got better and they said, Clint, your, your spot here is secure. Do you want to keep going? And I was like, no, I can't. Yep. I would lose too much of what I've gained by going back in yep. to the system because it, it's, I can tell a huge difference in my personality shift the moment that I go, I spend eight weeks in therapy and then I go into the company and all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. I'm like walking through ego. Yes. I can feel it in the air and I, it, it, it forces mine to jump up to the surface. And right. the first thing that I think I was glad about that is that once I came back, you know, all the guys had heard what had happened. Yeah. And, um, I didn't hide it. They said, how are you doing? And I was like, well, I almost killed myself, uh, pointed a gun at my wife. Uh, it's been about three months since I was here and I feel a lot better, but just walking through the doors, I, I got this, this kind of this, this whiplash effect of, you know, there's something, something not right about. And I think what it is, is you look at those young guys, the guys that haven't been burned and you feel like you have to put on that facade again. Yep. And that's the hard part. You realize that you can no longer take on a leadership role in front of these guys because, you would do everything you could to, to shield and protect them from having to go through what you went through. And these guys can't do what they're designed to do and bred to do 
if they doubt themselves in any way. And I, that's why I finished the uh, handsome face hanger. And thing was like ego, huge egos are, are, are in our environment, our operational environment. And they're there because it's necessary. You have to have, you have to be the cock. You have to be the walk. You have to have the, the grit in your teeth. And when bad, when good people look at you, they say, there's a good guy fighting bad people. When the bad people look at us, they go, there's a fucking very bad dude pretending he's one of the good guys. That's the difference. And it's because we're ready to go. Yeah. Say the word. Don't need a gun. I'll kill you with my fucking hands. Like just say the word. Yeah. That's what's needed. Yeah. And that's how, yeah. And that's what keeps everybody in those right. environments, those, those key leader engagements. And when you're sitting down with uh, people that were just shooting at you two weeks ago, but now you're bartering a deal to say, okay, you're not Taliban. We're here to kill Taliban. And we're going to, we're going to work with you guys to clear this Valley. And then after that, it's game back on between us. And we understand that, but the Taliban are going to take over your Valley too. If we don't join forces to stop them, because we can't afford to you know, fight you guys on the way in, almost go Winchester on ammo and then try to fight our way up through the Valley. Like, yeah. It just makes sense for us to work together for this one thing. But you're talking about dudes that are warlords. And if you look at them with, the, and that's a couple things too, that I saw. Um, how do I say this? I've only seen it a handful of times since uh, earning my green beret and guys show up to a team and they're too green. They had a great childhood. Yeah. They've never really been in a fist fight before, but what they are is they're intelligent. They're strong. They're motivated but they give off this essence of <laughs> I'm a, I'm a wet straight bitch. Yeah. <laughs> this look at this wet pussy. just walks over. want to get fucked. Like, yeah. and you, you have to like harden them up. And it, it sometimes it'll look from the outside in like you're, you're being really tough on these dudes. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. the environment we're taking them into. We have to toughen them up. We have to give them some grit. We made first thing say before I'm willing to call you a teammate, you're going to go to the sparring room with me and I'm going to knock you the fuck out and show you your place. Uh, one of the things that I realized um, having a really chaotic childhood, being a victim of abuse, I didn't have freeze. It was, it was fight, always fight. Speed, surprise, violence of action, speed, surprise, violence of action. That's one that I didn't yeah. add to the collection. That I'm still thinking about how I'm going to write it, but it's like we live our life in speed, surprise, violence of action. And I told my therapist, and this was the God's honest truth. I was like, I was so worn down. I wasn't sleeping. I was using alcohol to knock me out. And even, so there's something there I'll touch on too. When I was using alcohol to knock myself out, I was changing the way that my body, the signal that I was giving my body, I would have like a moderate amount to drink at the bar, but I'd still black out. And then the, this other part of me comes up and grabs the wheel and takes my body for a joy ride. And I'm the guy that wakes up like almost like a werewolf Yeah. the next day going, Oh no, not again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why does this keep happening? <laughs> yeah. A whole but, different person. Yeah. And you can find different ways. In fact, one of the ones in the book that, um, I, I really liked the way it came together was the moon is upon me where I kind of take people through it. It, it fits. Yeah. And that's part of the book, but it's, you're, you're reading this, this thing about a guy being, um, you know, he goes away, something in his body begins to sway and, and he's chasing this other side of himself through the forest and all he hears is people dying and he sees the mutilated bodies and he's just trying to catch this beast that is doing all this stuff. And the, and the metaphor there is he's the beast. Yeah. And that's the reason why he can't catch it is because if, if he caught it, then he would, the beast wouldn't be there. He, he kind of goes away. He's the weaker personality now and this rage and unchecked aggression and is, is now stronger than the good parts 
and are overshadowing the little light still left inside. But the great news is we also have that little candle burning inside of us. And the answers are not outside of you. They're inside of you. Yeah. Everything you're seeking is is inside. If you want to be validated, validate yourself. If you want to be loved, have some love for yourself. If you want to be understood, first you must stop and spend some time with yourself. And a lot, what you'll find is, uh, cause I really went into this all, all in. Yeah. And what I found was, you know, I'm, I'm an idea. If you were to come up and zap my memories from me, everything, I'd be a new person ready to receive, ready to become a new personality because none of my past would matter. So I'm an idea, but I'm not an idea at the, at what makes me me. And as you go deeper into yourself, you find that I'm connected to everything. And everything's connected to me and my fucked up world only exists in my fucked up head because you can put two people in the same environment. One thrives and as happy as can be. And the other guy is sweating bullets, grinding his teeth, you know, looking at everybody's hip for guns. And, you know, that's what I told the lady in the hospital. I was like, I just want to have one conversation, one conversation where I just say hello. And that's the first word that comes to my mind. Not are they left-handed, right-handed? Is there a gun? What are my liabilities? Where are my exits? How do I kill him? How does he kill me? Yeah. Before you even say hello to somebody. And then they introduce you to someone else and it happens all again. Speed surprise, violent action, speed surprise, violent action. And you just get in this mindset. You're stuck. That on switch is stuck and you're burning out your mechanisms because you're not supposed to be switched on all the time. And that's what guys drives guys into the bottle. That's what drives guys into, um, basically they get so broken down and worn out that when this voice comes up to their head saying, well, there's an obvious solution to your problems. Yeah. You don't want to hurt your family, do you? You don't want to take all this good shit your team's been doing and wipe your ass with it. Just 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 go away. Yeah. And if you're a strong, a healthy, rested person, you're like, not today, devil. Yeah. But when you're beaten down and that voice is so much stronger than the voice you feel like you have left, the first thing you must do is stop and admit that you need help. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, after inpatient treatment, did you do intensive outpatient treatment Mm -hmm. for eight weeks? Did you also, um, what were some other things? Did you, have you tried SGB? What is SGB? The stellar ganglion block. No, but I've I've known guys that the only thing I've done is I get these migraine headaches. And so I've been seeing the the Botox and it really does help. Yeah, it does help. And maybe the reason why I look so young, Dude, My face I, doesn't I, move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am a big fan of the Botox injections. <laughs> I now get them all over my jaw. Um, Cause like they were dry needling my friggin' jaw to try to get my TMJ, the, my jaw locks. Mm-hmm. Like, and, yeah. So you see these, yeah, these are all porcelain veneers. You grind. I broke my teeth uh, in I my sleep. Them. I yeah. bit through, they gave me three bits and it, no shit. And I, I chewed right through all three of them. And uh, one night I had fallen asleep and the bit had fallen out and I, I literally snapped my two front teeth. Holy shit. While having a nightmare or having an intense dream or something like that. Yeah. And I, I got up the next day. I told my wife, I'm going to go get fake teeth. And she was like, well, they can probably, I was like, no, no. Yeah. Like they were gnarly Damn. because you're also keep in mind. I'm dipping two cans of Copenhagen a day, <laughs> drinking coffee for <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's just, I lived a soldier's lifestyle. Same yeah. as you. And no. in our environment, it's totally normal to sit there and see a guy that has Copenhagen all in his mouth, yeah. just talking and spitting in front of you. Like, it's okay, man. It's okay. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's, but we are constantly, 
constantly having to put some sort of chemical on our body to curve something else, some stressful or something, something to calm us down. Yeah. What, what are your daily, like for me, I've realized like I'm a big believer in not only my, my therapy, doctors, medication, uh, but mindfulness and meditation. Like I need all of those like treatment modalities to keep this thing functioning, Mm -hmm. like on top of like being active, trying to do everything I can to maintain that physical exertion is quintessential. And that's what happens like with me when I had my back, I talk about it also uh, in one of the chapters where it's like, you know, I, I leaned, I was my physicality, you know, making the national team when I was 17. That was the first time anybody had, had noticed me, given me a chance, then noticed me. And then I got to be captain of my rugby team. And I got to take on a little, little bit of a leadership position there. And then I joined the military and it was fine. And, you know, it was, everything yeah. was kind of like, okay, I, I get this. I was a guy running dudes up and down long street doing special pops PT that couldn't pass their PT test. I was, you know, yeah. I was calling cadence out there. I was doing everything and it just made sense. But then at a certain point, probably three years into the 82nd, I hit a wall and I was like, and this is what really pit, uh, told uh, the guys asked me when we were having a beer after rugby practice. They're like, Clint, are you the kind of guy who wants to be told how to do something or just the end state that we desire? And I'm like, definitely don't like to be told how to do something, but I can work off an end state because then you get to engage the creative side. So to answer your question, my daily regimen is um, I don't hit the ground running in the morning. I don't get on my phone right away to see what emails came in the middle of the night. I, I, I wake up, I go downstairs, I have a glass of tea or a cup of coffee. I stretch and I listen to some, you know, mellow tunes and just kind of like work out all the, the tension knots from sleeping on you know my back. And then I say, okay, I'm going to make a list. What are the top three things I got to get done today? Priority number one, two, and three, boom, boom, boom. And after that, that's when I'll open up my emails. That's when I'll, I'll plug back it into the real world. And that's a, and I can see myself too. And if I don't do it in that order, I hit the ground running and I'm all over the place and I get nothing accomplished that day and I'm super stressed out. But if I can wake up each morning and, you know, acknowledge that I am now building a new habit, the old stuff didn't work. That's the reason why I got to this new habit and this new habit works. So I'm just going to keep playing with it and making my own. And, And if it's not fun, if it's something you dread to do, then you're not going to do it. Yeah. It, so it has to be fun. You know, you might wake up in the morning and want to like just, you know, play some five finger pocket hockey or something. I don't know. <laughs> whatever, whatever. That, that's Eric's yeah. favorite thing to do at first thing off the <laughs> As soon as he wakes up, <laughs> dick hands. Dick hands. <laughs> and this is, this is great. And I'm glad you guys are doing the podcast because, um, I didn't know what to expect coming in here, but I think more programs like this are, it's, it's how we're going to get it up and out. Oh yeah. You sit around with a couple team dudes and they talk shop. And I think other people that are listening to this right now, they can relate to it, especially they've been in the environment. And if you haven't, you, you can at least tell that we're just being real Yeah, and we're authentic. And this is the stuff that goes on behind closed doors. But I guarantee you, if you meet me on the street, you know, right now I'm a little bit different of an animal than I once was, but if you had met me on the street, I would eyeball you up and down, yeah. figure out why the fuck are you talking to me? What do you want? And I'm not buying your brand. Go away. Yeah. But now it's like, 
that's the great thing. And I think I can end it on this Yeah, is that you remember what I said at the beginning and I was this carefree kid at the farm flipping over rocks. Yes. You never know what's yeah. underneath the rock. <laughs> and I asked myself this question, when did I start turning over rocks? And in this metaphor, it's people. When did I start looking at somebody and instantly make an assessment on who they are, what they're about, motivations, everything. And I didn't even say hi to them, but I already knew who they were. So now I challenge that. I go up and I say hello to people. I talk to them. And I'm nine times out of 10 completely fucking wrong. And I have a lot more in common with people than I would have ever allowed myself while I was carrying around the persona of a piece of green headgear. So we need each other. Some guys are still there. Some guys have been there for a while and it's going to take other GBs or Marines, airmen, yeah. you know, to, uh, that, that have walked the walk with them and they know how to talk the talk to get through them. So I beg you guys read the book freaking get it to them. The book is not like your traditional book. I've read maybe five books in my entire life, but I can read my they were book. all weapon sergeant man. <laughs> I, can, I can go back and reread mine. Why? Because it's in poetry and you know, yes. prose. I didn't it's, know what a pro was until I got my first review. That I like, it's pros. Like I didn't even know what a pro was. I guess I looked it up and it was like, okay, that makes sense. Again, no training. It just kind of came out. And so you can, it's a book that you'll read once from cover to cover. It's a quick read. And you'll probably go back a thousand times after that and reference it. Yeah. No, I, I, I believe that the best way to read this is like I do in the mornings. The first thing I do, I sit down, I do my meditation, then I do my, I read my daily meditation book and then Robert Frost and then this. And that is a perfect way for me to engage with the rest of the day because I read something that, is impactful that stays with me and I go about the rest of the day intentionally and purposefully with not just the, the words of, you know, Greek philosophers, but modern day. Oh, and since you hit the word philosophy, I had yeah. a person come up to me one time like, Clint, I've been reading your stuff and you're obviously into philosophy. And I'm like, Nope, never read philosophy. Don't, I never took philosophy. I, Never took psychology either, to tell you the truth. Until now, that's the way I, I, yeah. I was like, you know so what? I looked at Socrates. He's the only one that came to mind, even with an alternative education. You still have heard this name, Socrates. Basically, Alternative Center was, you know, we, we did do physics there. It was called ping pong. But uh, <laughs> I looked up Socrates and I read something, you know, I read some of his stuff. And it was kind of cool, man. Reading something that's hundreds of years old. And you're like, oh, he came up with the same conclusion. Good for him. Yeah. But here I'm not cross pollinating. And that's why I think that this book could never be duplicated on my part again, because now I am looking into philosophy, psychology, and I'm reading other people's works and it's stimulating a whole lot of yes. great ideas. Questions my and wife ideas. and I just came up with a, a book last night. Um, we were eating sushi and we've been through such a roller coaster of a ride. And it, I, I was like, wouldn't that be a great book and I pitched it to her and she, she loved, she loved it. She was like happily only after an unconventional fairy tale ending hmm. or, you know, they were always here and they lived happily ever after. Well, my wife and I are learning how to live happily again, but only after we both owned our part of the problem. And only when two people are healthy, yeah. can you then gauge where the relationship's at? It takes two healthy people to sit in the room with each other and talk to each other 
And that's when you'll know if the loves or the relationships gone or the, the interest is gone, or there's a bad codependency going on. Nope. Um, I got lucky. Like I said, I found someone just as stubborn as me. And that's the reason why we are going to make it 17 years going on 18 years. And it's only in the last year that Meredith seeing all the progress that I made and how quintessential I need to go back to my dad's death, um, allowed her the confidence to turn into her emotional grief from losing her mom in a car accident. Yeah. And, and I, I hate it. I hate seeing her go through it. I hate being her punching bag. You know, sometimes I'm just, in, I'm just a guy in the room and I get, I get bit walking by and I try to love her through those moments because she has loved me through those moments. And the reason why she is, you know, at this time in life, uh, I would say it's, it's harder to live with her now than it was a year ago. It's because she's going through the process of healing and it brings up a lot of painful, hurtful shit. And she didn't, she, she held herself together for me, but there's something about two alphas cohabitating the same, um, life together, home together is that one of us can be strong. The other one can slip up and deal with some shit. But if we're both broke at the same time, then our life's going to fall apart. Cause somebody has to, you know, be taking care of the bills. Someone has to be taking care of all life's little yeah. intricacies. And so she waited until she saw I was on good footing she saw Clint that she hadn't seen in a very long time. And he stuck around and proved to her that it wasn't just a little fleeting thing, but Clint is back. And that allowed her the confidence, but it took, it took her understanding that the reason why you're pushing me away right now is because it's easier to push me away than it is to go into yourself. And maybe I do need to take a walk and leave you alone with yourself. Maybe sometimes holding on to somebody for too long and trying to protect them too hard is actually what's holding them back. And that's the reason why when I walked through the doors in the hospital, I realized I'm not going to get this fucking chance again. I am a lucky son of a bitch to be here. I, if I don't get something, some, I don't have some epiphany while I'm here that, that sets me up for success on the outside, then I don't know. I don't yeah. know where I'll go. But the great thing is, is it was, uh, it started in the hospital, but doing the eight weeks outpatient, woo, oh, yeah. a lot of, a lot of good stuff came from that. And then there is a, there is a, a time when you go back around the guys and that's when you can kind of see it through, mm-hmm. you know, when I left the army for three years, I came back and it's like almost seeing the answers to the test. You see sergeant majors that have never spent a day outside of the army, yeah. but you've been out for three years and yes, they have the rank and yes, they're in the, but you can see that you, do you understand that? The army keeps rolling along. I think we've made a song about that somewhere along the lines. <laughs> and the, the you that is in that chair is not you. It's a, it's a, it's a rank, it's position, your oil. And then as soon as you get swapped out or you, you live your shelf life, there's going to be someone else sitting in that chair Yeah. and being able to leave work at work. It's one of the hardest things to do in modern day times, because again, that cell phone yes. strapped to your that portable office. So I encourage you guys turn off your phone. Don't apologize for taking time for yourself um, and spend some time looking at your outer self, which is a projection slash idea and compare that to the inner self, the real self, and try to get to the point where you can be the same guy on the inside as you are the outside. And it doesn't matter. The chameleon's gone. You walk through a door and you're you. It doesn't matter if there's a bunch of alpha males in there or there's a bunch of you know, hood rats in there. You are the same guy. You give everybody the same opportunities. You know, what is that quintessential thing? Have a plan to kill everybody in the room, but yeah. you know, be nice Yeah. <laughs> until it's time not to be nice. 
And you'll find out that being nice is what you end up doing 99% of the time. And I think some guys with the off switch, they, and I know I felt this when I was out, when I was really switched on, I couldn't sit in public areas. I was getting panic attacks. I was, I was, something would drop and I'd spring up ready to go. Your brain's constantly in that assessment mode. And, um, I forgot I was going to say TBI, (laughs) (laughs) you know, half the the guys out there like, Oh, he, I get this guy now. Yeah. No, that's, that's, it happens every day. And you just got to have grace, forgive yourself and, and love the process because it'll come back to you. Mm -hmm. That's a great thing about this podcast. That's why I write shit down. Yeah. You can come back on. Anytime you want. You could have some (laughs) profound stuff come across your frontal lobe. And so I'll talk about this, guys, just to get you started, and then we'll we'll end it there, is that you may be asking yourself, well, how do you start writing? Well, early on, it would come to me in my dreams. I would literally wake up, and I'd be somewhere in between conscious and unconscious, and my thumbs would be moving on a screen. And when I'd wake up the next day, there's probably 80% of the words that are misspelled, and even Google doesn't know what the fuck I was trying to say. But (laughs) I figure out, you know, and I I put it all together, and then I show it to my wife, and then she does have a college background and <laughs> she would put it to where I could show it to somebody else. <laughs> and nowadays, instead of the, these things coming um, to me in my dreams, because I learned that I, I was like, this is not a good thing for you because just having the phone next to me in bed was a bad thing. Yeah. No. Um, so I, I leave it in the bathroom to where when it, the alarm goes off or if the phone goes off, I have to get up, walk over, but yep. it's arm, it's more than an arm's length away. So um, I don't write as much as I do in my sleep anymore, but I'll be sitting there and it's usually when I'm in the shower, I do my best thinking. Something will come to me and I'll like scribble it into the, in the steam. And as soon as I get out and dry off, I go and put it in my phone. And it's sometimes just a couple words. Sometimes it's, it just comes out in one transmission. As soon as your fingers start going, it comes. But, you know, you'll find stuff. This is one you won't find in the book. Let's see if I can pull it up, but we'll end on this. Just so you guys know that you're not alone out there. And do you guys have a favorite in the book that you guys read that really spoke to you? you want to uh, my favorite tell so the guys? far was actually Arlington, which you read. And there's one more. Well, this one purple. Oh, that purple was Arlington. Oh, this one. When the music finally talk, stopped. Yeah. Cause you talk about your wife and uh, that really, that was impactful because one thing that I've always focused on, try to tell people is you gotta make your wife yeah. part of your healing. You gotta make your partner So instead of reading that one, I'll read this one to you guys. So all cards on the table. uh, I wrote, it's called my queen, but this came around our 15th or 16th anniversary. And I realized, Oh fuck. I totally forgot about our anniversary and I don't have a gift (laughs) crunch time. So I thought, you know, you're playing around with words and you seem to be writing a lot. So try to express that thing that you never seem to be able to lean in and you say, I love you, babe. What does I love you mean? Go a little bit deeper. Yeah. Go with that. Go with that. And it's because I went with it. I, I, I wrote this and it was all one paragraph Yeah, and it was only, it wasn't even supposed to be a part of the collection I sent to Mel, but she chopped it up, broke it up. And then she said it was one of her favorites coming back. And I was like, Oh, that wasn't supposed to be, okay. <laughs> but it's called my queen. And this is the part of the warrior inside of us that exp- I have a voice on paper that I do not have in the outside world. That's why I write So I need you, want you, dare not live without you. I find peace in your ocean eyes, desire between your precious thighs. You shake me to my very core, pulling me from my nightmare's door for all the world presses down upon my mortal shoulders. The song from your lips lifts the crushing load from my body. Your hands cast the world back into the heavens where it becomes weightless to the touch. Your eyes are the stars above guiding me back to the light as I drift a loss in an endless desert of space and darkness. Your arms shield me from 
uh, arrows of disparity protecting me from hopelessness. Your mouth pours whispers of sweet honey potions that ignite a power greater than a thousand suns burning endlessly in my heart for you and you alone. You're the hip, uh, your hips give birth to the pumping in my heart as our bodies fit together like uh, the final pieces of a missing, unfinished puzzle. You're my Aphrodite's, my goddess, my one true keeper of my heart's key. You have unlocked all that is good in me and have helped chain the dragon deep inside me that only wants to spit fire, hate, and pain upon myself and the world around me. You found me encompassed by a legion of demons. I was lost, outnumbered, and without the strength to unleash my sword. But with one kiss, you brought a soothing hope to this broken and tormented man. I was born anew in that moment. You freed me from... Uh, you freed my sword from the heavy stone of loneliness, giving me the power to slay my demons and remake my life anew under a power of a rising sun, bringing with it a new day, a new chance, and a new love that I've never felt before your kiss. You are my queen, my love, my life, and uh, for this life and all the ages, eons to come. On my knees, I gladly place all that is mine to lay at your feet and would throw myself upon the very sword you freed if you would only ask it of me. In this life, there is only your voice, your touch, your kiss. There is only you, my queen. Forever grateful and humble servant for all eternity, my wife, Emmy. And that, again, that was just like, yeah. out. <laughs> you, you guys would be surprised, man. And if, if you can put into words and show somebody, you'll, you'll find that tough guys, especially we have a hard time yeah. putting things into words in the moment. That's why we cuss so much and we stick to yeah. you know movie jokes and all that other stuff. But if you really tap into what makes us us, that passion, that passion for our country, that passion for our family, that if you were ever willing to die on another's behalf, you have a passion that not a lot of people on this planet have. Yeah, more and more people. Uh, and you're not even the first poet we've had. Um, mm -hmm. My good friend, Joe Bell, we were in, at Laurel Ridge together and was also somebody that I, I was learning meditation with. Uh He's the first one that was helping me try to express a lot of emotions and feelings through poetry. And he, the guy can just write. I mean, you give him any prompt and he's just gets it. And he, he hits you with these haikus are just like, holy shit. Like that's deep. Yeah. Here, makes I'll, it. I'll give you one more. This is one not in the book. I just wrote this. Looks so like, yeah, Joe Bell, you've got some challengers. Oh, here's Joe. So this is not polished up or anything like that, but. This kind of shows you um, how we are going to write stuff different from other people. Yeah. Uh, it's called Grazing Lions. Lay with sheep if ye be sheep. Lay with lions if ye be lions. Oh, yeah. I, a sheep, who allowed myself to be eaten by a lion, have become the lion. The tastiest flesh comes from that of another predator's. For I, a sheep, who became a lion, now protect my flock by eating other lions. No matter, uh, or I matter, you matter, life matters. How do we, as sheep who became lions, refrain from being coming predators ourselves now. How long can we lions be in this new skin grazing anguishly on grass? We must keep the flock in sight to protect them, but also must keep our distance for our thirst for blood and our hunger for flesh now overwhelms our sandy textured tongues. Lay with sheep if ye be sheep, lay with lions if ye be lions, but regard the lion that snips at the grass while in your presence. Okay. Yeah. And I, I challenge you guys, make a better one. All right, I'm on it. All right, we're gonna do it. Cheers. I can't. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on today, man. I'll uh, come back, man. This is a lot of fun. Right? Right? Yeah, just talking shop. We got to get. Uh, Ryan. Oh, if you guys uh, want to learn more, you can go to my website. Oh shit! You got a website? We're gonna plug that in. Yeah. So it's www.wordsbybodell.com, and 
So Bodell is B-E-A-U-D-E-L, wordsbybodell.com. And the book is called You, This Is Me Over, and it's now available on Amazon and Kindle. Yeah, you oh, have yeah. a, and the uh, first look is super extensive for it too. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Throw those reviews but That's where it. you're going to see me posting new stuff. And nice. We're, we're going to, yeah. yeah, we're going to get, and that's the, and it has a Clint at words at Bobadell.com. You can reach out to me, email me, bro. If you're a closet poet or you just have something, email it to me, dude. I will do everything I can to answer everybody's uh, emails, especially if it's a creative expression. You know, that guy, Joe, I was telling you about up in Ohio, he yep. sent me something. And I said, it was the only, the only time that I, I, I read something that actually sounded like something I would have written, but where he, where I, I, I helped him improve it. He, he talked about it was uh, an op where, you know, they drop a J dam and they were taking heavy fire from the tree line and then boom, body parts everywhere. And he, he had done a pretty good poetic job up to the point of describing, um, the bomb. Yeah. And so he called it a J dam and he, he, he labeled the plane and like, okay, well not a lot, not everybody will know what an, um, an F 16 is or, uh, an A 10 and a JDAM, not a lot of people know what a JDAM is. So mm-hmm. what if you change this one part to the Eagle screams, the bombs released Ruby led gr- Ruby red glitter. Now all on the trees. Mm. It's something you can yeah. see. It's something you can taste. It's you can touch it. It's it. And that's where I challenge you guys is don't, you know, it, and if you have to write it out that way, write it out that way, but always be looking, how can I open this aperture up? to make it more inclusive yeah. of other people that may not, I'm going to lose them in the technical stuff. And even as non-technical as my book was, even in the reviews, some people are like, this is an awesome book. Loved it. But he loses me in a couple parts when I start talking about companies, are majors, company commanders. Like, well, <laughs> no. dude, sorry, bro. Sorry, you were my target it's, audience. It's not for you, <laughs> but if you got from cover to cover and you're still giving it a three out of four stars and Hell the only yeah. thing was a couple spelling errors yeah. or grammatical errors, I, I bet it's a win. That's a win. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it guys. Thank you so no, much. Thank you, man. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, this was good. So without who's your daddy? What's he do? Yeah, we, who is your daddy, <laughs> and what does he do? Well, I'll tell you what he does. He makes sick, sick beats. His name is Eric Simcox. Very nice, <laughs> great success. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in for another episode of the Security Hall Podcast, the only podcast that's here for you. Well, some of you, not all of you. You know who it is for. <laughs> you know. You know. <laughs> if you fuck. Not me personally, you. but a guy, I know. <laughs> Him and that podcast, they got it on. <laughs> Love you guys. Stay Good, safe. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>